Hello, everyone. My name is Jacqueline Sabodi, and I am one of the hosts of Two Therapist Tales. March is Social Work Month and offers us an opportunity to pause, reflect, and celebrate the impact of the work we do. This year, the theme for Social Work Month is that social workers are essential. I can't think of a more fitting word that embodies how important we are to our clients, to our communities, and to our profession. In 2020, and now in 2021, we have been asked to show up in the most trying of ways. As some social workers will share, we have helped navigate a pandemic, held space for some of the most arduous and sustained trauma that our nation has ever seen, during a social justice movement and during one of the most heated and historical presidential climates. It's been a year, and these hard times only shed more light on the unhealed pain that many of us carry, and the strong need for social justice movements that bring equality to all. I believe that this happens by having social workers in all arenas of life. What inspired me to create this podcast was simple. I love our profession. I love that we get a month to celebrate how truly meaningful our work is and how our work would not exist without the lives of others. We hold such great privilege as social workers, and my hope is that we never take our work for granted. So I dedicate this podcast to all the amazing and passionate social workers out there and to our beautiful clients and communities who give us this honor of walking through life's ups and downs with them. Welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your name? Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Aubrey Hunt. I am a social worker. I am going on my 21st year of being a social worker. Um, I currently oversee a community mental health clinic. I have a booming private practice, and I also um, teach graduate social work students. So definitely busy and full. Amazing. So great. Uh, Tell us a little about why you decided to enter the field. Wow, that's that's a a little bit of a kind of a long-winded question, but probably for several reasons. Um, And they are a little bit more personal, but I don't mind getting a little bit personal. Um, I my parents got divorced when I was six, and they went through kind of a nasty divorce. And instead of them going to therapy, they sent me to therapy. And I have to admit that I had quite a few therapists over the years, because like I said, it, it was not the nicest of divorces. And 
I didn't have some, I had some not so great therapists. And I thought to myself, like, this is really interesting stuff, even as a kid. And I'm like, I think I could do better. Mm-hmm. And I always got really interested in, um, you know, how the brain works and human behavior and things like that. And then when I was in high school, one of my um, friends in my close circle committed suicide. And I think that's what really made me realize that I really wanted to understand mental health and about, um, you know, and, and, and help people that were in need. So it was kind of the combination of the two that really made me want to be a social worker. I love that. Thanks for sharing all the intimate details too. That's beautiful. Yeah. So we would love if you could share a um, client or experience that you've had um, throughout your years in practice that's really stuck out to you and that's really stayed with you and maybe left an imprint. Well, actually, I have to go all the way back to my field internship to tell you the truth, Um, because I think what now keep in mind, this was like the late 90s and things were much different then. There wasn't a lot of restrictions and people were, there wasn't a lot of oversight and what interns were doing. And I kind of got thrown into an internship that I didn't really want. Um, I decided late in the game that I wanted to um, do social work. So I kind of got the last pick and I ended up in a community health center that specialized in HIV and AIDS. And Again, going back to the late 90s, we were still really unsure about how it could be contracted and things like that. And, um, you know, I was a little bit nervous and because I, I was a little bit, I would say, ignorant and I didn't know much about the disease itself. And, and a lot of the people that I worked with were peer support people who were HIV positive. And I have to say that that experience, I ended up doing working in that agency for two years and um, which I don't think they let you do anymore. I think they make you have two different experiences, but I did two different sides of it. I did the HIV prevention side and working with people that were HIV positive. And I literally felt like I was like in a movie. (laughs) They, I mean, they had me doing all these like things that I don't think would be allowed these days. I mean, I was going into underground needle exchange programs and and I was, you know, going into Asbury Park when Asbury Park was not the place it is now and pulling, you know, people that were homeless out so that we could take them to, you know, a food kitchen or going to track down one of my clients who was a sex worker who, you know, um, you know, needed to get, you know, their medication. Um, they, uh, they trained me to do HIV testing. And at the time there's, there's this nightclub in Asbury park called paradise. It still exists today, but it had just opened and they sent me in there and it was like, I'd be there till, two or 3 a.m. handing out condoms and doing HIV testing. And I got to know so many really interesting people. They they sent me into um, the Monmouth County Jail to do sex education classes. And as a young woman, you can imagine, it was a very interesting experience. Um, And I literally like, I'm like, this is the coolest thing. I felt like I was like, it was like an adrenaline rush um, of like, you know, of, I really felt like this is grassroots stuff. I'm making a difference. And I, I really learned so much. And I actually um, befriended uh, one of the clients just because he was kind of like my, 
my study for my thesis, um, you know, about needle exchange and things like that. And at that time, it was really something that was very risque and not talked about. Um, It was illegal. Um, And he was a transgender um, male and uh, he went by John or Jane, depending on what day it was. And um, he kind of really showed me a lot about the community. And um, I really got just so interested in it. Um, And even about the sex workers and things like that. And I just, like I said, it was so interesting to me that I fell into this internship, not wanting to do it and left with such a passion for social work and grassroots work and working with people that, you know, are underserved or um, where there's all these like social biases that it was just such an amazing experience. Um, You know, unfortunately that, that, um, that person, John Jane that I was speaking of, unfortunately passed away. He also had neurosyphilis on, on top of being, um, having AIDS, which is something is, it's very interesting disease because it's not, it doesn't happen very frequently these days because syphilis is easily treatable, but it's what Henry VIII had. Um, and it actually makes you go crazy. So it, uh, it, it was, and he passed away not long after um, my internship ended um, in a kind of violent incident. Um, and it really made me sit back and think about like, wow, like this is not a movie, this is real life. There are consequences to all this behavior. And it really made me take a step back and actually made me really rethink about what I wanted to do for a living. So I did take a break from social work for a year or two and realized that I wanted to get back into it. But I think had that not happened, that I wouldn't have realized that this was kind of like my calling and what I wanted to do. I love that. Thank you for sharing such a unique and amazing and passionate story. And if you could share one quote that really summarizes the impact of the work we do, um, or that, you know, you constantly find yourself kind of coming back to. Well, actually this, I found this the other day and it really just spoke to me and it's not a quote and who, for whoever came up with the meme or whoever, you know, came up with this, I bless you because it really spoke to me and brought tears to my eyes about the work that we do. Um, and I, I couldn't help but repost it and it just spoke to me so, so much, but it said in 2020, therapists counseled people through a global pandemic, an economic crisis, a politically polarized election, a racial justice movement, chronic uncertainty, anxiety, and depression, with no preparation, warning, or special training, all while they went through the same experience themselves. If ever there was a time to honor and value therapists, the time is now. And I'm like literally shivering right now, um, just because it made me realize how how much this year has taken a toll on all of us um, and how much strength it's taken all of us to kind of pull together and, and be a community and, and how much we've bonded even as therapists um, together in our own unique experience through this whole process. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing your beautiful story. I so appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Welcome. Can you tell us your name and how long you've been in social work practice for? Sure. My name is Melissa Donahue, and I've been in social work practice for 24 years. That's awesome. 
And tell us a little bit about the reasons you entered the field. So I entered the field because there was a family medical crisis involving my aunt and her two minor children, my cousins, mm. which gave me my first experience with the social worker's role. Mm. My family needed to make long-term care decisions, but there were many challenges to overcome. There were barriers to communication, finances, and religious beliefs. Although I was a teenager and an outsider to the process, I would hear the stories and see the transformation that took place in our family because of the skills of a social worker. That's amazing. I love hearing this. These are like my favorite parts of the story, understanding why we all got, all got to it. Um, and then can you share with us um, an experience with a client or an experience of being a social worker that has really stood out to you through your career and your profession? Sure. So when I was an oncology social worker, a particular family asked me to attend a treatment planning meeting. There was a patient, his spouse, three adult children, and the medical team of doctors reviewing the treatment plan in this conference room. Conference room was full. I remember sitting in the back of the room thinking about what could I add to this emotional meeting? Mm -hmm. Here, I was new to the profession and the population. Where is my value? Why did I need to be there? I never spoke in that meeting once. Mm -hmm. The room cleared and I waited for the family. The youngest daughter threw her arms around me and said she was grateful for me and all I do. She appreciated my presence and my input. Remember, I never, I never spoke in this meeting at all. Mm -hmm. My superpower in that room was my being, my company, and my silence. Sometimes in social work, it is not seen, it is felt. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's beautiful and super powerful and a good reminder. Mm -hmm. And can you share with us a quote that really resonates with you and kind of summarizes the work that we do? Sure. So Maya Angelou was the commencement speaker at my college graduation from the University of Delaware, and her quotes have always held a special place in my heart. And my favorite one is, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. I love that. You know, it's so ironic. You're making me well for tears. That is. is it on your wall? Yeah. Oh, look at that. It was so funny. I was like, which one am I going to do? Maybe I'll do that one. But no, you did it for us. <laughs> I love it. Welcome to the show. Can you tell us your name and how many years you've been in practice? My name is Nicole Wegweiser, and I've been in private practice for a little over five years. That's awesome. Can you tell um, our listeners just a little bit about why you decided to join the field of social work? Yeah, um, I was living in New York City uh, post-graduate graduation from college. I was dancing. Um, I was a modern dancer and um, waiting tables at the time to make money and just going through uh, a bad relationship. And it's funny, my mom actually called Dr. Phil, I believe it was, to get some <laughs> advice because she didn't want to hear about this toxic relationship that I was in. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to enable it. And um, yeah, Dr. Phil told her to stop talking to me about it. So Dr. Uh, Phil making his way yeah. to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, um, and so she recommended that I... Uh, see a therapist. And so that's how it started. And I just had such an incredible experience in that relationship with that therapist mm -hmm. that it made me want to do that with other people I for other people. That. 
Yes, the relationship, right? That's where it all begins. So absolutely. Love that. Absolutely. Um, so if you could share with us um, an experience that you've had that's really stuck out to you through your professional years, whether it was a client or whether it was a supervisor or just something that you always kind of come back to and has really shaped and molded, you know, parts of who you are as a social worker. You know, I was thinking about that um, when you asked me that question earlier, and I really think it's right now. It's what we're going through. It's the here and now. And it's it's just been such a difficult, challenging, yet rewarding time to be a therapist. Um, and I'm just blown away by how my clients are helping me as much as I'm helping them right now. Yeah. I, <laughs> I know. I had said, you know, when all this happened, I was like, you know, I was like nervous, like my practice is going to fall apart. No one's going to do virtual. I was like, as much as like they need us, like how much we've needed them. Oh yeah. And it's really like more of an exchange yes. than it is, than it ever has been. Right. right. As opposed to like work, right? Like, yeah. yeah. And, and this idea of like therapists aren't supposed to self-disclose. Well, I guarantee you if you're working with a client right now and you're not self-disclosing about how hard it's been and what you're dealing with too, they would find it a little bit odd Yes. And I think that we're kind of in this together. I mean, always in life we're in this together, but but now more than ever, because their problems are my problems, my problems are their problems, and we can all relate in yep. different ways. Yeah, that's such a um, powerful part of social work. Like we are in this together, right? Yeah. Like they are our greatest teacher and we hold that great privilege of like going alongside the process with them. Exactly, there's no hierarchy. Yes. Oh, so bold. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Beautiful. Fantastic. Yeah. So, um, it's just been this really, um, it's hard because it's, it's really challenging too, because there are some days where I'm in my own rut and I don't really want, I don't feel like I have the capacity to be there for somebody else. And I'm like, how am I going to get through the day? And, and then I somehow do it. And by the end of it, I'm like, ah, I actually feel better than I did before. So yeah, more to that kind of just having those connections, having these deeper conversations and, and being, um, you know, there to hear their struggles and empathize with them and uh, hold them and validate them. And, you know, they do the same for me too. If I, if I bring something up, but of course it's always related to what they're bringing up and, and yeah. what's going through. Right. And also just like that experience of them being held and you being held also there's duality in our process and in the room. Oh yeah. Always. And it's hard because we're virtual. We're not seeing each other in person. So that adds a whole nother element of like exhaustion and disconnection. So it makes the work that we're doing and the words we're using and the way we're speaking and all of that, that much more important than it would if we were in person. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for all that. And just a quote that really brings everything together and maybe you find yourself coming back to that really resonates with you. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. And um, I really always come back to the idea that uh, shame cannot exist with empathy, Brene Brown. My favorite. And, yeah. And so 
our job is to empathize with our clients so that they no longer feel shame about what happened to them, about who they are. And it's so powerful. Mm -hmm. It's such a powerful process. I feel so grateful to have come to this career and have been able to witness and be there to see these changes occurring in others um, just by by sitting with them and, and holding their shame. Yep. Social workers, we lucky ones. Yeah, we are. We really are. Welcome. If you can share with our listeners your name and how long you've been in social work practice for. Sure. So my name is Lisa Strube and I've been in the field of social work going on 21 years. Love it. Love it. Amazing. Long time. Yes. You've seen a lot. Exactly. Um, If you can share with everyone some of the reasons you decided to enter the field. Sure. So um, the primary reason I became interested in social work stems from a traumatic incident when I was in sixth grade. So at the time, I was attending a private school in a small town in Wisconsin, and we had just finished mass that day. We had mass every day. And kind of the long story short is we just started our classes and we learned that a mentally ill man who was an unmedicated paranoid schizophrenic walked into our church and shot and killed our parish priest, a deacon and the parish custodian. And our school went on immediate lockdown. And the individual's name was Brian Stanley. And he believed since he was off his medications, he believed that he was a prophet Elijah. And he was allegedly upset that our priest allowed girls who are in my class to read the scriptures during mass, even though it was authorized by the higher ups through the church. And in the end, Brian Stanley was judged to be insane and not legally responsible for his actions. And it was really after this situation that I became interested in human behavior, um, advocating for those who are unable to advocate for themselves and to make sure that everyone had a fair chance. Um, And that's really what led me into social work. Wow, that is so powerful. And I never knew that. No, I tend not to share that. (laughs) Social work supervisor badass. (laughs) Um, Can you follow that up with um, an experience with a client or a supervisee or a supervisor? Um, Or just things, you know, something that stuck out to you over your years in practice um, that you, you find yourself... Um, coming back to or that really um, has stuck out? So I won't share any stories about you, Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) I have been thinking about our times at the psychiatric hospital and our experiences. They were all interesting. As a supervisor and supervisee relationship, not patient supervisor. Let me just clarify for all listeners. Yes, definitely. You know, the case that really sticks out to me when I was doing clinical work, um, was it was a a kiddo that I was working with. He was an eight-year-old African-American male, and I'm just going to name him Joey. Mm -hmm. And um, this case dates back to 2007, so it's quite a while ago. But Joey was in foster care because he and his mom were in a car accident one night, and his mom was impaired with various substances. Mm -hmm. And so she had caused the accident. She had a history of being involved with social services and the police due to various drugs, drug situations. 
So at that moment, she was arrested on site and sent to the emergency room for treatment. And that was the last memory Joey had of his mom when we started working together. So when we started therapy, um, he hadn't seen his mom for a couple of months because she was in jail. Um, Joey didn't know who his father was. He was an only child. He didn't have any siblings. And he didn't have any relatives to stay with. So he was all alone after this traumatic event. And so Joey shared with me how much he hated the police, the paramedics um, that took his mom away. So he viewed them as these evil individuals that separated him from his mom and sent him into foster care. So our relationship was really started with the fact that he didn't trust adults. Um, He wanted to move back in with his mom and social services did have the ultimate plan for family reunification, but there were a lot of steps that needed to happen before that could, before he could be uh, reunited with his mom. So two situations when I worked with Joey really stood out for me. The first is um, Joey being eight, we had little matchbox cars and we were moving them around on my floor and, and just talking and building that relationship. And my phone was ringing, my office phone was ringing, and I knew it was the front desk notifying me that my next client had checked in. And Joey looked at me and said, aren't you going to answer your phone? And I said, no, I said, it can wait. And he looked at me and his response was, is that because I'm more important? And I said, yes, you are more important than any phone call. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that session, he was smiling when I said that to him. And I could tell he was really taking that in. And at the end of the session, he looked at me and said, you should get a mirror in your office. And I said, what would I do with a mirror? And he said, you need to brush your hair because it's a mess today. And I was like, okay, that was an interesting session. The second situation with Joey um, really came from a personal situation. So as we've talked about, I tend not to self-disclose in therapy sessions or in the workplace. Um, However, my husband and I were driving to my parents for Thanksgiving and on the way, we ended up in a rollover car accident. And based on how the truck rolled, I ended up with cuts all over the right side of my eye and a huge black and blue eye. Um, And despite how much makeup or whatever I could do to to try and cover it up, there was no way to to cover that piece up. Mm -hmm. So I called Joey and his foster mom to let him know what happened so she could be prepared when she saw me to let Joey know what happened. So when Joey entered my office, he took one look at me and I could see the shocked look on his face. And I knew this was going to be a really tough session. And... So what we talked about was the accident, what happened. And I said to him how grateful I was that the police and the paramedics transported my husband and me to the emergency room so we could get the necessary care. And despite how bad my eye looks and a couple of other bruises, we were doing really well. And from there, we talked about it really opened up that opportunity to talk about emergency personnel and how helpful they can be at times. And their job is to make sure everyone who gets hurt gets the help that they need. So in the end, um, Joey was reunited with his mom. And I guess the reason this case sticks out the most to me is knowing that this happened back in 2007 and looking at everything our society is going through right now, 
I'm really wondering, it gives me an opportunity to reflect on how I would handle this situation now, Mm -hmm. uh, discussing the police with a young impressionable client, um, just based on our climate that we have. Mm -hmm. So this is a case that even though it happened in 2007, still really sticks with me. Um, and really makes me think about how our society has changed over the years, whether it's good or bad, and the impact that it has on social workers and the need to be aware of everything that's happening in our society. And then what does that mean when you're in that therapeutic session and how do you handle those in the therapeutic session? Absolutely. I really love that you bring up, you know, the current racial, political, social um, climate um, and how truly informed um, our practice is right now, you know, 2020 and 2021. That's a really important message. So I'm so glad you brought that to this podcast. Yeah. Well, yeah. Joey's story was so powerful. Thank you for sharing all of it. Awesome. Um, and I just love the part where he was like, I was more important, right? So like the healing that can happen in that relationship and the attachment that our clients can have, you know, and that can, they can feel that, that sense of um, meaning that they, they, they have for us. Exactly. Exactly. And it was, um, you know, having that very intense moment and knowing that that was a critical conversation and saying you are more important than that phone call and what that meant to him. Yet in the end of that session, he was able to have the humor and say to me that my hair was a total mess. So that really was our relationship. And, and the key to that therapeutic process is the relationship and providing that safe environment so kids can really have that opportunity to explore and have a positive experience with adults. Yes. And also just like the ruptures and the repairs that were able to be formed in your relationship with him and then it was a healthy attachment. Exactly. Because he can be caring and felt held and cared for. And then he can also be human and tell you your hair's a mess, which, you know, for our listeners who can't see, you've always had, for the decade that I've known you, a perfectly coiffed bob. (laughs) I did go to the bathroom afterwards and I'm like, it is kind of a mess today. (laughs) That's awesome. So. And um, if you could just share a quote that summarizes um, and pulls together, you know, what it is to be a social worker, maybe one that you just keep coming back to. Do you know, um, in, in the last year and a half, I lost my mom unexpectedly. And so I've been just looking at various quotes and there are certain quotes that I favor more than others. But I think the one that's really sticking out for me the most right now is be the things you love the most about the people who are gone. And that makes me think about um, whether it's people personally who have impacted my lives, professionally who carry themselves in a particular way. It's making sure that, that I'm treating people the right way and giving them what they need um, and just being the best person that I can be. Mm-hmm. So that's just a value that I hold both personally and professionally. Yeah. And I love that you say that like as social workers, we get to be that vehicle to give people what they need. That's like the most rewarding part of this profession, right? It is. It is. Yeah. We the lucky ones as social workers. <laughs> we lucky. Welcome. Um, if you can tell our listeners your name and just how many years you've been in practice. Sure. My name is Dr. Erica Goldblatt-Hyatt, and I have been in practice for 15 years. It feels like yesterday that I started, so I don't know how 15 years happened, but here I am 15 years later. 
I feel the same way. I'm like, it was just 2009. Like, no, it wasn't. not at all. <laughs> but it's a good, I feel like it's a good feeling. Like I've got at least a decade under my belt. That's something. Yes. When you cross, cross that threshold, you feel like maybe a little bit more of a grown up. I don't know if you ever really feel like a grown up, but I feel like I can call myself a grown up, you know? Yes, absolutely. And a seasoned clinician. A seasoned clinician. Yes. Um, if you can tell us a little bit about some of the reasons you decided to enter the field of social work. Absolutely. So most people are surprised when I say this, but the reason why I went into social work was because of death. I uh, was terrified of death from the time that I was really little. I had this crazy existential anxiety, worried about dying, had lots of questions about dying. And, uh, Nobody in my family or my friends really seemed to have the same worries. And um, at some point, I decided that the only way that I would understand and be less afraid of death was to get really close to it. So initially, I thought I was going to be a medical doctor. Um, but as I was exposed to hospitals in my youth, I realized I think I want to be a policeman for doctors. I, I want to like be someone that helps them follow rules. I mean, I grew up in a time where Doctors are a little bit more paternalistic, um, a little bit more father's father knows best. Um, so I ended up applying for bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania. And when I told them, I think I want to be a policeman for doctors, the director of the program said to me, well, tell me a little bit more about that. And I said, well, I want to work in medical settings and I want to work with doctors, but I really want to help patients feel heard. And, uh, you know, I really want to get close to death and dying. And she said, yeah, that's social work. You want to be a social worker. <laughs> so, you know, I, I didn't know much about social work. I knew that it was always the courses that were interesting to me in my undergrad that I never took, but that sounded really cool. Mm -hmm. um, and I ended up doing this dual degree in social work and bioethics. And my career took off from there. I was able to work in a lot of end of life contexts and um, ended up getting my doctoral degree. And, you know, I think like most social workers will tell you, you kind of your career and your journey takes on a life of its own. And so here I am 15 years later. I love it. Never would have guessed. Mm. Super cool. Super, super cool. Um, okay. If you can share a client or experience that has stuck out to you the most throughout your years of practice, maybe someone that you kind of just is always your experience. that's always just you, know, you come back to you think about it really was impactful and maybe helped shape you as a social worker well I, I think for me the biggest change that happened on my journey was um in 2012 when we actually lost our first pregnancy um so i had worked in death and dying for quite a while and um i really thought i knew everything there was to know about grief and loss i really you know i hadn't really been for someone who was so afraid of death, I actually was pretty sheltered from it. I never had anyone die close to me. Um, so I had really, I had walked this path of grief with many, many people, both, you know, adults and children with cancer and life limiting illnesses. And then I was, you know, I had just gotten my doctoral degree. I had just gotten married. I was pregnant with my first child. And at 20 weeks, we were told that he had um, a very deadly birth defect, that his trachea didn't form. And uh, as a result, he was dying inside me while he was also developing at the same time. And so we were faced with this heartbreaking decision of should we continue the pregnancy, knowing that uh, it was likely he would die in the womb 
Uh, and if he didn't, if he was born, he would likely be brain dead. So mm-hmm. we faced this agonizing choice, my my husband and I, and we ended up ending the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And after that happened, I was hit by a grief that really showed me what grief is like. You know, I had witnessed grief, but I had never experienced grief. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent days in my bed just wailing, just crying. Um, and, you know, we have lots of animals in the house, cats and dogs. And I just lay there in my bed. All my animals ran away because I was just screaming, just crying, you know, wishing for my son. And it was just my big pit bull mix that kind of came and laid down beside me, this big rescue mutt literally on my face and licking my tears. And, you know, that was about the extent of the first few days after it. Mm -hmm. So after that happened, I realized that there are really very few outlets for pregnant people, both, you know, women and people that don't identify as women um, that are pregnant and that have ended a wanted pregnancy or that have had an abortion and experience any type of grief. Yeah. Right. So, you know, there's kind of this myth that uh, we can't regret our abortions or we can't grieve our abortions or have a host of grief experiences. And, you know, the more I talked to people um, that had been through either a similar circumstances myself or uh, that knew people that had been through similar circumstances, I really started to understand that um, there's not a whole lot out there for people that have experienced this type of pregnancy loss. So it changed the course of my practice. You know, I took time to heal and then I took time to learn. And uh, when I was ready, I started practicing with families that have experienced abortion and have ended wanted pregnancies, unwanted pregnancies, um, or that have also had their babies die so- shortly after birth, uh, perinatal losses. Mm-hmm. And um, I can't tell you how rewarding and fulfilling it is both to be a clinician, to work with these folks, um, to be a researcher and to be able to do studies with these folks. I ended up at Rutgers University and just by, you know, whether you call it providence or fate, um, one of the pioneers of research on termination of pregnancy for fetal anomaly, her name is Judith McCoyd. And uh, she does that work at Rutgers and she became my mentor. And now we both do research together. Uh, I use her as a peer supervisor. So we talk about cases every week. We've written things together. So my entire life took this change in direction as a result of the death of my son. Um, And not that I would go through it all again, you know, of course I would rather have him here, but reality being what it was, he wasn't meant to be here, but my life unfolded in such an amazing way. And it is so rewarding to work with people that are struggling with, you know, they might've ended a pregnancy after infertility treatment. This could have been their first pregnancy after trying so hard. And then there's a structural anomaly or, mm-hmm. um, you know, they might've been pregnant with twins and lost both twins and they're heartbroken and gutted and working with them to process the loss, to feel that their loss is valid. Um, and then to support them as they walk sometimes through pregnancy again, which is 
the most terrifying thing and, and the most brave thing if you decide, you know, that you want to try again mm-hmm. to walk with them through it or to support people that say, you know what, I don't want to have a family just to be this resting place for people facing this unspeakable loss. And what's really cool is, you know, sometimes I get to meet those healthy babies that come at the very end of a long journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that journey isn't over for their parents. You know, it's, it's all, all working with these folks across the lifespan of their, of their, their grief and then their post grief life. So, you know, it's something personal for me that switched the direction and um, just really showed me that I had so much more to learn about participating in grief. And uh, I feel incredibly, incredibly blessed to be able to do that. I love that. You bring up such um, an important message. Also, I think for social workers that we go through our own trying, traumatic and terribly devastating events in our life. But what it does create is in the, in the depths of our despair, it creates this tremendous capacity to then go on and be this vehicle and vessel to hold space and hold the depths and despair for that of others. And so, mm. you know, the beautiful thing that I love is that your son gets to be with you every day as you do this work, whether it's with research or whether it's with other moms or whether it's with, you know, other children that have passed or have been lost, you know, for a myriad of reasons and, and families. Um, and, and truly you're needed, right? This work is so needed, right? It's, 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 you said like your experience, like there wasn't a place for when you went through it for you to grieve in the way that you needed to. And so now you get to be the person that, you know, along with Judith, you know, doing this, this great and really important work. And I believe that as painful as it is, as, as clinicians for us to have to go through those chapters to your point, it is so needed, right? And that's such an, an important message for social workers. Like sometimes I think we can have that, those questionings of why, and, you know, this doesn't feel fair and haven't I learned enough, you know, but to your point, like we are, I think as social workers, like forever students and things are always constantly evolving and changing and, and changing our course. But I believe, you know, you brought in the spiritual part that there is this, you know, predestined path for us. And we just have to be present and walk alongside it and know that there's, you know, a greater good and there's reasons for it all. Yeah, it's it's amazing. You know, I um I've thought a lot about this and I've written a lot about this wounded healer paradigm. I think in social work classes we talk about that, right? Like, do you need to go through something mm-hmm. to work with a client group? And I don't think I don't think you do. You know, I, I call myself a transformed healer because mm-hmm. in practice, I actually my approaches to grief and loss didn't change pre and post. Um, the loss of Darby, but there was a transformation within me mm-hmm. that happened. There was a, a depth, a settling in and a rootedness that happened. And so it was affirming mm-hmm. that I had always been that place to hold space for people, but there was still an internal transformation. I think you can be transformed in a variety of ways. It doesn't have to be through death and, and loss. Um, but I think all of us as social workers, we have this like transformational moment that roots and settles us and shows us and affirms that, you know, this is why we do what we do and we're on the right path. And um, it's so deeply satisfying. It is. It so is. I love it. Thank you for sharing. I know that was a a vulnerable story. Thank you. Um, And then if you could share a quote that you also, again, find yourself kind of coming back to, or that has resonated with you, 
um, do your practice as a social worker? Sure. Can I give you two? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I always like to do more. I'm a very excessive person that way. More, more pets, more tattoos, more quotes. So I'm going to give you two. The first one is uh, a quote that I heard after my loss and it really spoke to what our clients go through um, when we're working with baby loss. And the quote is, nobody will ever know the strength of my love for you. After all, you're the only one who knows what my heart sounds like from the inside. Mm. Which I just think really validates the grief of people that have lost their, their pregnancies or their fetuses or their babies or whatever they want to call um, this attachment that they've had. Just the idea of being pregnant and the fact that you have this heart beating inside you and this this organism, whatever you want to call it, there's a relationship there. So um, I think it's a really validating experience to, to think about pregnancy loss in that way. And the other one I wanted to share is actually something a client told me the other night. Um, and this is a, a client who, like many of my clients, lost a pregnancy, had experienced multiple miscarriages, and then had an abortion at 24 weeks after a, a deadly fetal anomaly. This client is pregnant again, um, which just again, the bravery of, of doing this, saddling up again. And this is what she said to me, um, this is kind of paraphrasing, but she said, you know, when you're pregnant after loss, it's like walking a tightrope. The more you keep your balance, the wider the space below you gets until it's a plank mm -hmm. and then a platform, and then it's a full floor, but you never forget what it feels like to fall. Mm -hmm. You know, and I just thought, wow, it's, it's so true. You, you kind of gingerly step forward and it feels so precarious. And as, as you start to heal, as you start to make meaning, as you move forward, that space beneath you starts to widen. But there's this, there's this tentativeness because you know what that fall is like. And that's where the anxiety comes from. And that's where the fear and sometimes, you know, the paralysis of not knowing if you can keep going. And so I just thought that she expressed that really beautifully. And my guess is that that experience is not just for people, that tightrope feeling is not just for people that have gone through a baby loss, but people that have experienced grief in general and now are trying to saddle up and, and move through their lives again. Yeah. Mm, I love that. And I'm sure she'll love to know that it really resonated with you and was applicable here. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for doing this. Owning our story and loving ourselves through the process is the bravest thing we'll ever do. Renee Brown. Welcome. If you could tell our listeners your name and how long you've been in social work practice for. So my name is Laura Larray, and um, I have been a social worker since 2007. That's when I graduated. Love that. Over a decade long. Yes. <laughs> a good decade. A good decade. So good. Yeah, when you can be like, definitely a decade. I know what I'm doing. Yes. No, forever student. That's what I say. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. As social workers, we can't get enough. Yeah, it's true. It's so true. If you can tell the um, listeners additionally, what um, led you to enter the field of social work? Um, it was it was really a drive that I had since I took a psychology class in high school. It was a very, very basic um, intro to psychology, and I was just hooked. I was fascinated. And um, when I was an undergrad, I, I wanted to learn more and make sure that this was something I wanted to do. So I started working at um, a local psychiatric hospital near my college, and that 
very much solidified for me that I wanted to go into clinical work. I love that. I love that it started in high school. I also um, loved my work in the inpatient psych units. Um, I think that similarly, it, it solidifies like this is exactly where I want to be and what I want to be doing. Yes, because it, it, it's a hard type of um, setting to work in. Um, and specifically, I was in, in residential programs with teenagers. And mm-hmm. whenever they're living on site, you know, there are additional challenges and different type of challenges. And I feel like if you're able to, to do that in, in terms of clinical work, you pretty much set yourself up for being able to do everything. I agree. It's such an acute setting, but it really lays a super strong foundation to, do, to go on to do lots of other great, strong work. Yes. If you can share with our listeners a client or experience or just, you know, what it's like to be a social worker, um, something that stuck out to you throughout your years of practice. I think what what mainly stuck out for me is social work is so different than any other type of clinical type of training because we look at the whole person. Mm-hmm. not just the disease or, you know, quote unquote, disease or symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, other, um, other backgrounds may, may kind of just focus on what's going on, what the client's coming in presenting with. But social work very much is more of a holistic approach. And that's what really stuck out to me as I was trying to navigate where I wanted to go in terms of graduate studies. Um, because so much is involved in somebody's presentation, situational stressors, financial burdens, these don't necessarily make up part of a DSM diagnosis. Social work really helps, you know, helps you address all of that with your clients. And I think that's what really made the difference for me. Because when we look at the client as a whole and look at everything that's going on in their life and not just the few presenting symptoms that they're coming in with, we can help them much better. We can help them much better to help address kind of everything in a well-rounded type of way. Absolutely. And like you're saying, like whether it's symptoms or diagnosis, we're looking at what are all the different layers and parts in their life that are contributing them to present, you know, an anxiety or shutdown or depression or, you know, overwhelm. Exactly. If, if they have issues with housing, we can help them address their depression and anxiety all they want. Their basic needs are still not being met. Mm-hmm. So that needs to be addressed. You know, that needs to be um, identified as a, a problem area. So this way, you know, we're not basically kind of targeting the wrong thing. Their depression, anxiety is coming from somewhere too. Um, So, you know, that's why I really love social work is because we really look at the bigger picture and people seem to do really, really well with that and respond better for longer periods of time. Yeah. I love that you're bringing in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Yes. We always have to think of that. Yeah. So those basic needs of housing, food, you know, are not being met, then how can we address the other parts of this person's world? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And if you could bring a quote to um, our session, you could could share a quote that summarizes our work as as social workers. Which one would you say resonates the most with you? This was, this was one I kind of had a, a little bit of a difficult time with because there's so much that's involved in our work. Um, the one that kind of stuck out with me the most, um, it's a, a quote that I, I hold very 
near and dear to my heart, not just for social work, but for many things, but I think it's applicable in this situation too, um, which is, you know, to the world, you may be one person, but to one person, you may be the world. Um, not that, you know, um, in terms of best friends with our clients, but we can really be a rock for them. And we could really be somebody that they feel safe with, they confide in. We hold their emotions a lot of times so they can kind of lift that burden. So, you know, in going into this field, we bring a a lot of ourselves into it. And, and that very much matters for most of the clients that we see. So that always sticks out to me um, and, and also reminds us the, of the responsibility we have um, in working with clients um, because we may be that, that string that's holding them on and, and what we choose to do with it and how we choose to have our boundaries and our responsibilities means all the difference. It so does. I think that that quote really captures the essence of social work. And also, I love that you highlight how important the relationship is, right? And again, what you're saying, just like how sacred and serious it is to hold, you know, so many vulnerabilities in the lives of yes. those that we work with. And then also, I think the other best part is like how much like we end up like feeling as well in terms of like the way that our clients give back in the relationship. Like, yes, it's it's professional, but like it then, then does end up having a personal element to it and you know, just knowing what that um, gives back to us as social workers too. As the absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I love that. Thank you so much for joining and for participating. I loved all, sure. your, all your contributions. and insights. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. If you can share with our listeners, your name and how many years you've been in social work practice. Sure. My name is Kim Bennett, um, and I have uh, been in practice for probably five years total. Um, I took a little bit of time uh, away uh, right after I got my master's and have gotten back into the field recently. Um, so yeah, about, about five years of work total. Love it. And if you can share with our listeners additionally, what led you to get into the field of social work? Um, I've always felt connected to this profession. Um, it's continually given me such purpose and meaning in my life. And um, I feel like being able to walk alongside others um, and kind of, and be witness to their journey at, to health and healing uh, is, is such an extraordinary position to be in. And as I get older, I find it becomes even more important to me. Um, and really as far back as I can remember, I've wanted to be that person. I've wanted to be in this position. I've wanted to be a therapist. Um, I know all through high school, that was my only goal, <laughs> um, and going to Fordham too. So, um, it's really been a lifelong goal for me and it just continues to become, um, a bigger piece of my life as I get older and, and, and gain more experience. I love that so much. Um, and a client or experience as a social worker that has stuck out to you. And then you, you kind of just find yourself kind of coming back to, or that really just hold a special place in your heart. Yeah. It's interesting. This, um, particular client was one of my first, um, first teens and, um, he, you know, came to America when he was really young, um, and had grown up a a child soldier and mm. really um, complex background. And he was very quiet and reserved, um, very funny, um, but definitely 
hard to get, hard to get him to open up. And um, he would, you know, open up here and there. And, and um, a lot of our work centered around love and affection and what that means for all of us. Uh, really, he had grown up without any kind of figure, um, really didn't have his, his parents weren't really around. He didn't, wasn't really able to witness a, a loving relationship in his early years. And he had been talking to me about, I really just don't understand what that means. What does that feel like? And moreover, how do I, how do I express that? How do I show people that I love them or I care about them or I like them? Mm-hmm. Any, and what do all those things mean? Um, and it, it was an unexpected challenge. I don't think even since then I've had someone come to me with that and I was newer in the field and, um, but felt like, okay, this is something we can, we can work on. And so our time together was great. And, and we really had a great dialogue going. And um, as we were terminating, I had said, you know, choose something you want to do um, in our town. It can be anything um, that you want to do for our last session. So chose a museum. So I said, great, we go and spend half the day there. And um, we get to this exhibit that was of his home. Um, mm-hmm. Just, of course, randomly. <laughs> and it was amazing. It, it opened up the floodgates to this kid who really had, had, had really struggled to um, tell me what life was like. And as he was doing it, it was wonderful. And part of me was mad that I hadn't done this sooner because I think it really would have opened the door to such important work. <laughs> but um, it was, he finally found a way to communicate. Um, it, it prompted these conversations and it, it gave him something to point to that was like, this is where I used to live or, um, and kind of give this history to me that really um, gave me such background. So we get through this exhibit and was like, all right, it's, it's time for us to leave. And he goes, can we stay for a little bit longer? It's like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we stay and we just sat there and we talked and um, we finally get turned around to go and uh, we're on the street and going over a few, you know, things I'm really proud of him for doing and, and conversations we've had and really kind of highlighting the, the, the good moments. And uh, he comes up to me and he, he gives me a hug <laughs> and it was one of those like butt out, you know, <laughs> Like I just met you kind of hugs, <laughs> but it was the, just my most favorite memory I've had in the field because t- to have that be our last moment and have that be the main thing we were working on was so meaningful for me and for him. Um, and then he turned around and he walked in the other direction as fast as he could. Uh, but I was so proud of him. And I just, I think it's really informed my practice as I've gone forward because it really is, you know, when you bring it to your, to its most simplistic terms, you know, being able to resonate with someone and to, um, to, to have that connection and find a way to connect, be creative. Um, I wish I had gone to the museum earlier, but I, but now I think differently. <laughs> now I'm like, let's try it. Um, and really getting, you know, finding a way to communicate that resonates with, with them. So that's, that's been my, the one, client I always go back to, I always think about him and um, really how, uh, how fortunate I, I was to be able to witness that 
progress, you know, for him, that was monumental. So. Yes. You bring up so many good um, parts of being a social worker, connecting, you know, something that's resonance with another person, um, being able to attach and experience love in the relationship and to be able to help someone heal that rupture. And I think it was just super full circle that of course, on your termination session with him, you end up with this really pivotal um, point in his process. And also, right, like we're never done doing the work. Um, and that I believe that that was just like his next like chapter, right? In his story of his book, right? I, I felt, you know, I, I think that a, a lot of times we talk about how um, clients become very invested in their therapist, but it works both ways, you know, and um, being able to take that piece of him with me yeah. for my whole career is, is yeah. a gift, you know, and, um, but that's, what's, that's, what's so great about this field and, and the people who work in it is, is I find pretty consistently that, um, we're really able to take those moments and, and, um, you know, use them to, to better ourselves and our, our practice, you know, the, the way it affects your personal life too is, is pretty big. So. It is, it is. I like to say, you know, just to your point, like, yes, we mean so much to our clients, but our clients end up meaning so much more to us as well. Really do. Yes. They really do. Yeah. Oh. Oh, I, I know. I just, I couldn't believe it was in my termination session. I'm like, <laughs> just getting started. Let's <laughs> <Yeah>. do <laughs> that again. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and one quote that you find yourself coming back to that really summarizes stuff for you. Yeah. So there, there's kind of two, <laughs> um, they're not famous quotes. These are, I have a, a friend who's just a phenomenal writer and, um, she's, she's written a couple of things and, and two, the, the one that really, um, always comes back to mind for me is, um, running away from that, which we cannot name will only haunt us in ways that cannot be repaired. Mm -hmm. Um, this one's really important. And, um, you know, I think quotes resonate as a professional, but also just as a human myself, having been through very normal experiences. Um, it, it's really important to name how you're feeling and and maybe what happened to you or what's happened in your life and um, identifying it and doing the work to heal. Um, it that's our responsibility um, for ourselves and you know ultimately the people who surround us and. Um, I have felt that way in my personal life, which is why I say that. Um, and I, I think it's true. You know, you can run for as long as you want, but it's always going to catch up. It'll get you. <laughs> It'll get you. <laughs> um, and I, I think it's such a, uh, you know, anyone who comes into a, a therapist's office is is incredibly brave. It's, it's not an easy thing to do by all means. And um, being able to recognize that and, um, you know, nobody's ever going to be perfect, but coming in and doing the work and, and, you know, working for progress and, and to um, work towards a healthier life and um, is really what, what we all want. And I, I, I do think yeah. that uh, as hard as it is, it's, it's vital. Um, yeah. The other one that I, I kind of always come back to um, is really about becoming in, in beauty making. Um, this woman talks a lot about beauty making and, um, 
a lot of times she talks about grit and about um, like getting through the hard stuff. And um, so she wrote, beauty making is bruising work. The process is ugly. We get hurt. We upset others. We are treated in ugly ways. Mm -hmm. These things shape us. They soften our edges while they sharpen us too. Mm -hmm. And that last bit <laughs> is what really sticks with me um, because I do think that in the, in um, going through therapy and um, you know, really working through it and the experiences that we've had truly do improve us in both of those ways and, and really make us better advocates um, for ourselves, you yeah. know, as a, as a client, you know, um, but also, you know, you become a little more forgiving and kind of accepting of the way the world is. Yeah, true. <laughs> and I was talking with, with um, one of the other social workers, like, when we do, there is a sense of alignment that we can feel with clients when we've done our own work and our own mm -hmm. and being able to sit across from someone being like, I totally get it, right? There is there is worth in that um, as social workers. That's not to say you don't have to go through all these hard shifts to be a true, yeah. social worker, but there's <laughs> a sense of, again, um, universality when we can sit across and be like, I fully get it, yeah. And, and, you know, we're all, we're all a collection of our own experiences and stories. And so I think it really does bring, um, and that's the great thing about um, social workers is, is everyone's so unique. There's a person for everyone. And if I'm not your cup of tea, Jackie probably is <laughs> or somebody else is. And that's, that's the beauty of it is you really, um, you yeah. know, it, it's okay to, to, to test people out and, and see where the good fit is and um, where the experience lies that might um, be most helpful for you. I, so um, agree with that. I like to say it's like um, sometimes finding a therapist is like test driving a car. Yeah. You know, you may try a couple before you find the right fit. So I love that you bring that point as well. That's an important one. I loved this. Thank you. <laughs> so welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank and you. Can you share with our listeners your name and how many years you've been in social work practice? Yes. So my name is Kelsey Alpaw and I have been in social work practice for about one year. Ah, the little baby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and could you also share what brought you to the field? Yes. So I entered this field because I knew from a pretty young age that I wanted to help people and truly make a difference. Um, I feel like I've always had a sensitivity and empathy toward others, but also a strong curiosity about people and their interworkings and just a desire to dig deeper and have that shared experience with others. You bring up so many good parts of social work, so empathy mm -hmm. and sympathy mm -hmm. and the inner workings of others and wanting to connect. I love that. Yes. And if you could share an experience or a memory or a client um, during your years of practice that you, that has less left an impression on you and you find yourself, you know, coming back to and thinking about. Yes. So I would say one of my more significant client experiences so far, um, would be a conversation that I had with a client who I had been treating for about six months. And throughout that time, I had begun to see significant growth and progress in this particular client. Um, but I did find that the client was often their own worst critic. So they would get frustrated with themselves at, you know, maybe an area that they felt they were still lacking, or they would become frustrated with how they handled a particular situation. 
Um, and I could see that they were feeling disappointed in themselves a lot. Um, both myself and the client's loved ones had really verbalized all the growth that we had seen and all of the things that this client was doing well, but I could still sense that they were feeling pretty stuck. So we kept working, we explored what the client was experiencing, and a few months later, I could tell that they finally saw what the family and I had been seeing for quite some time. Um, just their energy was lighter, they just seemed completely different than when we had first started working together and much more confident. And the thing that really stood out to me when we started processing this was that the client said, I feel so proud of myself. Now, this was a very pivotal moment for me because I had been right there with this client week after week and to finally see that they felt the pride in themselves that you know, I felt while treating them um, was really something that I'll never forget. And it just reminded me that although this work can be challenging. We don't always get moments like this every single day. When it does happen, it really just points out how much of an imprint we leave on the lives of those that we're treating. So that was one that definitely has stuck with me a lot. I love that that client allowed themselves to attune to your energy, like finally allow their nervous system to connect and experience the joy and pride that you felt for them and allow that experience. They were able to embody that experience. And uh, you're right. A lot of our cases are hard, but when we do have those um, successes, they really are like tuck it away in our heart and in our pocket for a rainy day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) For sure. Uphill in a battle. We're like, ah, I'm so stuck. Right. It's to remember like the successes are there. I love that. Exactly. Yeah. And that's definitely one that I do find myself coming back to. And I, you know, you just think of it and it makes you realize that all of the hard work is very much worth it. I know that word imprint. We do leave important imprints on the lives of the clients we get to work with. Right. Mm-hmm. And then vice versa. They live an imprint on us, right? So that's right. Like, it goes both ways, definitely. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. yes. Yeah, that's such a big theme here. And a quote that you find yourself um, coming back to time and time again, or that really summarizes your work or just is really meaningful to you right now. Yes. Um, So this is one that is still meaningful to me, but I feel like it's something that has kind of just been throughout my whole journey. Like when I first started going to school for social work and just something that I've always come back to, it's a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And it is to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived that is to have succeeded. And that has just been my, like something that I go back to, you know, that's a beautiful one. Yes. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you for joining. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. So thank you for joining us. Can you tell our listeners your name and how many years you've been in practice? Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, My name is Dana Spett and I have been in social work practice for over 30 years. That's amazing. You may be our (laughs) kind of thing. We have like 20 years. I got to go back through. That's awesome. Yay, Dana. And can you share the reasons you entered the field of social work? I entered social work early in my career um, as I have always felt more comfortable being in service to others. Mm -hmm. Um, My lifelong experience with horses has also intersected with my love for social work. So through a desire basically to address one of my own daughter's minor special needs, I discovered Mm -hmm. the world of equine assisted activities, Mm -hmm. um, which feels like part of my DNA. And so for the past 20 years, I have facilitated the growth of an equine assisted activity center. And I've had the absolute privilege of being immersed in the social experiment that appears to have a universal impact on 
basically anyone who's willing. I love that. Thank you for sharing uh, part of the vulnerable parts of your story as well. And as social workers, we have these experiences or a client where, you know, our mind just kind of keeps coming back to that person or that experience um, because they, they imprinted us. So if you could share with our listeners one that you find yourself coming back to just in your years of practice um, that really has shaped and molded you, made you who you are. This was a really tough question to nail down because, again, 30 years is a really long time. Yeah. Um, so just being in the DSW program at Rutgers and understanding now what a composite study mm -hmm. is, um, that's where I, I chose to focus for today. Um, so I think the impact personally that that is the greatest on me is how um, how close to the tenets of social work as a practice and as an industry is matched and, and facilitated through the horse. And in my experience, the horse is the most authentic social worker. Mm -hmm. um, they're basically, we consider them in service to humans. Um, social justice, I think if we were to look at social justice through the lens and the eyes of a horse would be a whole different animal, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. um, there is dignity and worth, and it's it's that feeling that you get with a horse. Um, there is an at, an absolute connection that doesn't require words, and that's the connection to nature, which I think, um, you know, we're human animals and we can't separate ourselves from uh, the animal world and, and the natural world. So it, it really highlights the best. Um, and then we have integrity. Horses can't lie. They just don't have that capacity. Yeah. Um, and then there's a the competency piece, which is really interesting because I think if you can have people who are really expert in the field, the experience can be wonderful. So that's where that universal social work um, experience. experience and experiment, um, you know, when I think about our client base, it it's not just the identified patient that comes to the farm. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it has a universal effect, which when you really pull the lens back, that's what's so exciting. So um, I, 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 I consider the family. Um, so we will have someone, you know, someone in a family will have made that extra effort to go outside the box and, and to consider something that's a little bit um, less, less mainstream. So equine assisted activities would be one of those areas. So I think of um, a family who came uh, with a child who had a diagnosis of cancer, um, was actively receiving treatment. Um, and the, the relationship between the physician that was referring and comfortable with the child coming to the farm was something positive and different. The child came to the farm and they allowed, you know, they're allowed to be a child and not a, a child with cancer. And they're allowed to move their bodies and get out of their heads. And psychologically, there's all kinds of benefits to that. So you not have the room too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's for the identified patient. Mm -hmm. And in our first bouts with working with families with with really medically fragile children, we thought that the rest of the family would be so jazzed about their their child who is the patient having this experience. Um, when in fact, um, we opened the experience to the family. So the sibling could be riding at the same time and the parent could have an experience with horses. And we understood that it's it, it, it would be unfair. I have children. It's unfair to put one child on a horse and have others stand yes. on the sidelines. Right. <laughs> so um, the big takeaway after was that 
the patient, you know, a nine-year-old precocious kid who's battling for her life, um, derived more joy from her sibling having the experience that was positive because of her illness Mm -hmm. and the parent being able to see their children experiencing something normal and having a grandparent come along for the experience and taking pictures and the conversation where is reported, I'm getting goosebumps myself, but the conversation they report back to us after was all about the horses and the experience and what horse they rode and how it didn't matter. And no one cared about the diagnosis. And Mm. again, you know, something to look forward to. And if we can keep those experiences happening, it sets the stage for motivation, for hope, for, as, as we know, changing yeah. And and we can change, you know, we can heal ourselves if our positive outlook is really important. So, again, and then the doctors have a different outlook. So I think the 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 waterfall effect of that is what's so exciting. And and I can apply that to a child with a diagnosis of cancer, a young adult who has an autistic spectrum disorder diagnosis, mm-hmm. who's finding their way. Uh, a veteran dealing with PTSD or reentry into the community. It's just endless, which is really exciting. There's so many big overarching themes that translate to any clientele, right? So anyone that walks into the farm, like you're saying, can be a child, it can be an adult, it can be a veteran, it can be someone. Um, a, a clinician, it can yeah, be, you know, a, a, a corporate team, team building work. Yeah. yeah. So cool. You bring such a unique and needed approach to social work. It also reminds me of um, ecotherapy, right? So yeah. obviously mm-hmm. when you're doing equine, you, for the most part, are outside I know there's You're some- 100%, 100% ecotherapy and yeah. biophilia. And yeah. the more I learn about what is intuitive and, and normal for, for behavior, yeah. we take for granted and we're not paying attention to. And I guess it's the paying attention piece mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Um, and from a social work perspective, that's where we leave it. So when I consider equine assisted social work, we're not diving deep into the talk therapy. It's not appropriate in my, in my opinion. Um, and I think it's just a nice way for, for you to feel grounded, the individual to feel grounded and maybe to start to, to work on their strengths and weaknesses and their challenges, um, perhaps in another setting. Yeah. Yeah. Another setting and also just a completely different modality to what I assume to tap into the unconscious, right? Where things need to come up into the conscious in order for us to fully and truly heal. Right. Yeah. That's powerful. I love that you brought that to the podcast. And one quote, again, that you find yourself coming back to that really summarizes uh, the work we do and who we are as social workers and kind of what we embody. Uh, again, another really hard question because I, you could go down that rabbit hole, but John Burroughs, who is an environmentalist, um, and I like the quote that he uses. It says, I go to nature to be soothed and healed and to have my senses put in order. Mm, that's beautiful. So the simplicity of that, and really it's, um, you know, I, I think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you have to have that foundational piece. And I do believe that being in nature and having this foundational aspect that you pay attention to sets the individual up for a more positive outcome. Yes. And also taps into a very unique part of our soul. Like you were saying, you know, animals um, and horses, they just do what they need to in nature. And if we can mirror and have the same experience as them, you know, how much weller could we be? Right. And horses could be your ride into nature. Again, another yes. part. <laughs> Love that. Awesome. Thanks, Dana. I appreciate everything you brought to the podcast. For social My work. pleasure. So thank you for joining us.
Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Totally. That's awesome. Uh, if you can share with our listeners your name and how many years you've been in social work practice. Yeah. So my name is Kelly Schultz. I am a licensed clinical social worker and I have been in social work practice for about four years. Amazing. I love it. And if you can also share what brought you to the field and why you want to be a social worker. Absolutely. So um, ever since I was a kid, I knew I wanted to be in that helping profession. And I just assumed that meant teaching. So I started um, in undergrad as a special education and early ed major. And then um, on spring break, I went on a service trip to Guatemala. Mm. And while I was there, I was working with um, this incredible mission. And a lot of the volunteers with that mission were social workers. So once I went on that trip, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to switch from education into social work. Still the helping profession, but just a bit different. Um, and I'm so happy that I did that. Oh, that's so cool. So the trip to Guatemala was in your undergrad, you said? Yeah, it was yeah. my freshman oh, year cool. of undergrad. It was awesome. Yeah, those service trips are really amazing. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, a client or an experience that you find yourself coming back to that has really stuck with you throughout your years, whether it's been over the last four years when you've been in practice or at one of your internships or during undergrad or your graduate mm-hmm. studies. So I was thinking about this and of course there's always, there's a lot of client experiences that stick with us as clinicians and as therapists, but there's one in particular. And the reason why I actually, I have something that he gave me right above my desk. So I see it every day. Um, But it was when I was working in a partial hospitalization intensive outpatient program. And for those that don't know, that's a more intensive program. So Clients come three to five days a week, anywhere from like three to six hours a day because they're struggling significantly with some mental health issues. Um, so this was a, a nine-year-old boy who had come in and um, his parents were concerned. He was experiencing suicidal ideation, homicidal thoughts, um, and overall inability to really regulate his emotions and was just feeling hopeless from them. Um, so his parents mm-hmm. said, hey, I think we need this higher level of care for him. So throughout his time, I mean, he came in and, and didn't know what therapy was, right? I mean, he's nine years old, didn't really know why he needed help or, or he was just so confused and really feeling helpless. And throughout his time in our program, it was individual sessions, family sessions, group sessions. He really, really grew. I mean, we would have sessions and he would be like, let's focus on balancing out my dimensions of wellness. Let's learn different ways to effectively communicate. I mean, he was just, he was into it once he realized like how- a rock star. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I think why he really stuck with me was because not only did he, I mean, of course there were ups and downs as there always are in the therapeutic process where there were great sessions and then there were sessions that would end in tears, but he always persevered, was always like, you know what, I need to, I need to keep trucking in the right direction. Like, I know I can do this. And he not only did that by the end of treatment, but he was, we called him the mayor of group. I mean, he was the youngest kid in the group. Um, He, I mean, he was nine. The other kids were probably like 12, 13 and 14. And he became the mayor. And the kids would look up to him while being the youngest. And he just really showed that he was able to overcome his struggles, but he didn't want to just leave it at that. He also wanted to help all of his peers overcome their struggles too. And by the end, we have this thing called a graduation group um, where it's meant for his peers to really praise him and talk about how well he's done 
but mm. he wanted it to be not so much about him and more about what can we end our time together with. So we brought being nine, brought a bunch of arts and crafts, brought canvases and him and all of his peers made positive art canvases that they could all bring home and hang in their rooms. And he wanted to leave that lasting impression for them. And he even said a quote throughout sessions and throughout groups that I still use today. Um, he would say, where focus goes, energy flows. <laughs> and I would say, brilliant. Right? Exactly. How brilliant is that? Nine years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So he was just so special. And, and like I said, yes. I think what was so special was that he was struggling so significantly, was able to overcome those struggles and apply skills and then become a leader for himself and for his peers, which is just so phenomenal. Yeah. So you think about the acuity that you shared when he entered treatment and how he persevered and and some sessions were great and some sessions were were challenging, Um, but then he was able to adopt language that was so much more adaptive and useful for him. And then he was able to be the little mayor and the leader in the program. That's so impressive. And again, at nine, like. Exactly. Exactly. Just so impressive and just shows that like we are capable of that growth and change. Yeah. Where focus goes, energy flows. I'm going to borrow that too. Right. I I still use it. So I hope his peers still use it. I mean, he would say it all the time, but it's so true. I love it. And I love (laughs) that he, um, gave you a transition gift, right? So these, when our clients, when they're, you know, when we're, when we're terminating sessions, that can be really meaningful for the client and for us, um, you know, gift giving is such a precarious thing in our field, but what it means, I think for a client to be able to just offer the clinician something to yeah. be able to say, you helped me through so much, or you were so meaningful, or, you know, I want you to have a, like a part of me as I leave. Right. Exactly. And I agree with you. It's kind of like that topic where do you accept it? Do you not accept it? That's Um, an important thing to talk about. It is. It really is. I I felt like, for instance, what he gave me was a picture frame. And within the picture frame was a little drawing that he made. And then just like four or five sentence notes saying thank you. Mm -hmm. And I thought that, I mean, he clearly put a lot of effort into that. Mm -hmm. And it was so thoughtful. And it, it just shows that he cares. And I feel like that's an instance where you absolutely have to accept Accept. that. Yes, I agree. And the exchange of accepting what that communicates on a cellular and unconscious level, you're basically affirming like his worth and the value in the process and in the relationship and that he stuck with you and will continue to Absolutely. in in accepting. It communicates all of that's unspoken. Mm -hmm. A hundred beautiful exchange, a nine-year-old. Exactly. He's doing great things when, I mean, he already is, but he will continue to do great things. I love it. And one quote that you find yourself coming back to as a social worker that really just summarizes, you know, thoughts and experiences for you, or maybe it's just one that, you know, you're twiddling around lately. Yeah. So this is actually a a Carl Rogers quote, which I know is like, oh, so cliche, right? Um, <laughs> we need we need the founding fathers in this podcast for sure. <laughs> Necessary. Um, but it's the good life is a process, not a state of being. It is a direction, not a destination. I love that. And it's just so important because it, there isn't like this end point. It's ongoing. It's this ongoing process that yes. we're all working towards as humans. So I feel like that's just, it can apply to anybody. Yeah. It's like happiness is not the um, 
like you're saying, like the destination or the final product or the end result. It's a process. So we're going to have days that are joyful and we feel like we're content. And then we're going to have days that are arduous and adverse. And that is just part of being human. Exactly. Yeah. I love this. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for having me. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Can you share with our listeners your name and how many years you've been in social work practice? Sure. My name is Callum Polito. I am uh, entering my 11th year Bravo. into social work practice. Thank you very much. Thank you. It feels good to be over a decade, right? Uh, you know, I just got my service award. On, I have officially have my name on a plaque somewhere that is, <laughs> says I've been doing this for 10 years. Uh, so yes, it's all, it's all exactly how I drew it up. It's official. <laughs> yeah, exactly. very, very official. That's awesome. And what uh, brought you to the field of social work? Did you always know you wanted to be a social worker? Is it something that you stumbled upon? All the listeners kind of how you landed here. Yeah, no problem. Um, I always knew I wanted to help people. When I came to the hard realization that I was never going to make it into professional sports, mm. I, I I knew that I... I was not very good at math. I wasn't very good at science. I wasn't very good at a whole lot of things. But the one thing I was pretty good at was connecting to people mm -hmm. and making sure that the folks who didn't have a voice knew that somebody out there was going to be able to be there for them. And for whatever reason, it's just something I always took a knack to. But speaking honestly, I got my undergraduate degree in psychology and I thought I would be a psychologist. But as I got older and I wanted to explore the world, I found my entry into social work and uh, it connects me a little bit more than, you know, psychology. Nothing wrong with psychologists and psychology, but that human component with, with social work, um, there's nothing like else, nothing like it, nothing else like it. Yeah, you bring up so many good points. I love that um, you bring up us being the voice for those that can't be their own voice. And that social work really does embody and encompass a lot more other facets than other counseling professions do. That's such great points about, you know, what constitutes a social worker. Yeah, and especially given, you know, the society we live in, everybody's got an access to a social media account or putting their opinion out there. And yet there's still so many people who feel like they cannot be heard, mm -hmm. which is a remarkable thing to consider here in 2021. So, um, you know, as, as we found out over the last year or so, because of COVID, unfortunately, it's very important to take hold of every, your mental health and making sure that you understand that there are supports out there. And uh, even in this world of, you know, 6 billion plus people, you know, you're never, you're never feeling, don't ever feel too alone because there's, there's always people like you or I out there to try and throw your lifeline to do what we can to help you out. That's such a great point. And a client or experience that has stood out to you throughout your 11 years of being a social worker that has helped shape you or change you, or again, that just, you know, you really hold close to your heart. So I have two. Uh, the first one it took place, it started about three or four years ago. This individual came to us as um, a male. And then after a year or so working with us, decided that they needed to come uh, clean about their real identity and who they were. And they uh, began the transition process to a female. Um, 
something that you and I have talked about, uh, but also it's a little bit of a curveball is that they have decided to go back to being a male now. So I think that experience um, going back and forth from trying to find out who they are, just, you know, the strength and the tenacity and just the ability Mm -hmm. to kind of ask for help, but also, you know, try and find out who you are. I thought that experience has been, and still is because it's still active right now, has been um, a front row seat to something that is, so a lot of people are never going to experience in their life. So really I think that is mm-hmm. really, really remarkable. And another adult that I work with, uh, he always used, you know, he's the teacher on the student uh, that I, I, you know, uh, yeah, there's not much between my ears, if you will. Um, but just lo and behold, slow and steady won the race. I've been able to get to call him by his first name. And we are much more on a, a personal level in the sense of, mutual respect it's more of a two-way street than it was a one-way street so i just think just you know putting in the work putting in those long extra hours of phone calls and late night calls um to just kind of let them know that i'm not going to be the person to send them back at the hospital or uh to just shove them to the side and go on, call me any name in the book I, i'm not going anywhere and you know it's just, yeah. it took a, it took a couple of years but i you know we're finally on that level where there is, you know, he, they know that I could be trusted and that I could, I could, I'm going to be there through that with them for the th- through the thick and thin. So that's been a, a really cool experience. I love both those stories. And the thing, things that stood out to me was that we get to your first client, um, the individual who um, is in the process just of identifying their their gender, right? Like we get to be advocates and allies for. Um, our trans um, friends and family members. And that's a really beautiful uh, part of our job, right? Because that's a community that has been discriminated against. Um, You know, we are living through one of the most heated, you know, social and political uh, climates right now. And we need to, as social workers, to be there for all different groups that are um, discriminated against. So I love that you brought that to the podcast. Um, And just, you know, the, the process of being alongside someone as they walk through their own journey and story. Like there's no better gift. And as social workers, we're gifted that every day. Um, and it's really right. Wrong. No, I, I, you said it perfect. And and what I say to that person is, you know, cause there was obviously some ambivalence and some kind of concern about going back and, you know, back and forth as, as they said, but we're all writing a book mm. and what's that, what, what's, what's your book going mm. to say? What's the next chapter? It's going to say, and that really, really resonated with that individual. And, you know, Mm -hmm. they've been working on still writing their book. Mm -hmm. Everybody's writing their book. What's your book going to say? I love it. And your, your other client, right? Like you said it, you were like, I'm not going anywhere. Right. Like how powerful is that message? I'm going to be here. You know, you want to kick, you want to scream, you want to call names. I'm going to be here for all of it. That's it. Mm -hmm. And even after all of that, I'll still be here kick, scream, push, shove, whatever you want to do. I'll be here. I'll be here tomorrow. (laughs) Ghost therapy, come back to therapy. I'll still be here. That's it. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. That's right. (laughs) I I was was like, people might think we're crazy, but (laughs) no, but to your point, like how uh, much that means to our clients and how much richer the bond is when they realize, you know, that proper attachment, I can attach this person. They're safe. Right. And, that client allowing you to call him by his first name um, 
basically communicated to you that you've become safe and that there's trust in the relationship? It was, uh, it was quite the celebration that night because it was a <laughs> lot of work, a lot of hard work, but it was, it was worth it every second of it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's awesome. Um, and a quote that you find yourself coming back to or that you really like, or that's just sticking out to you. Um, yeah, absolutely. The one I just said about always writing a book, I think mm -hmm. it, it always resonates. Uh, I started working with teens over the last year and a quote from, believe it or not, Judy Garland is one that I always go to, whether it's with teens or whether it's with adults. And it's always be a first rate version of yourself and not a second rate version of somebody else. I love that. That's such a good one. Judy Garland. And I, and, and I know. Yeah. Judy Garland for the win. Um, it's, you know, who would have thought the, the, you know, wizard of Oz would, would be playing such a pivotal role in here in 2021. But again, the society we live in, you yes. know, social media, we have all these new norms that everybody's trying to conform to, especially with the teens that I'm working with. Don't try so hard, you know, to always just be yourself, always be a first rate version of yourself and not the second rate version of somebody else. And that's, that really resonates with them because they, you know, and even with the adults, just, just be yourself, do whatever you can to write your own book, write your own story, Love it. you know, and it's something that it really does resonate at from time to time with, with, with young and, and old, you know, um, it's just remarkable that people, once they hear it, you know, just being that first rate version of yourself, that's all you can really, you know, that's really, really makes them stand out. Yeah. Um, I think also you just bring up a good point that um, developmental stage of the teens and adolescents and emerging adults, um, they're so impressionable and they're trying to um, establish their own individuality. And so them just having that in the back of their mind of like, well, who am I doing it for? Is it for, myself or is it for someone else? Um, it's like, like what decisions, like who am I shaping myself to be and, and who is it for? Exactly. Exactly. And they're between parents, school, friends, social media, you know, movies, just culture in general, there's all these outside influences that kind of, you know, especially at that age where you're trying to figure out who you are, what you want to be. There's all these pressures, college, you know, um, you have to have a career all lined up, you know, it's, it's like, Take a deep breath, slow down. How can we be a first rate version of yourself mm -hmm. rather than a second rate version of somebody else? So it kicks in and it's hard. It's, it, you know, it, it takes a lot for them to kind of soak that all in and kind of uh, figure out who they want to be. But they know that there is somebody out there who can help them be that first rate version of themselves. Absolutely. I love it. Thanks, Kellen. hands in mine and scars show me all the scars you hide and hey if your wings are broken please take mine so yours can open too cause I'm gonna stand by you
Welcome. Can you share with our listeners your name and how many years you've been in social work practice? Sure. My name is Taylor Guthrie. I have been in social work practice since 2012. Love it. And what brought you to the field? Um, I actually wanted to be a pediatrician (laughs) and then I did not do so hot in organic chemistry and did not want to be in school for the rest of my life and then Mm -hmm. found psychology Mm -hmm. Um, and social work lets you kind of float between different areas of psychology. So it kind of happened organically. I love that. You're the second person um, today who has said, I was going to do this. And then I came to social work. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's really common for a lot of us. I know, you know, when I was in school, it wasn't as, it wasn't marketed as much as something like psychology or teaching or nursing was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, But I think it's interesting too, for like those of us that it becomes like a quote unquote plan B once we get into it, like we can't see ourselves doing anything else. Like social work is plan A, B, and C. (laughs) I love that. It's so true. That's so absolutely. And then, and then in that it was always there all along. Like it was always imprinted. It was like always in our DNA. We were always meant to do this, right? It's such an mm-hmm. calling. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can share a client or an experience that you've had as a social worker that has shaped you and you find yourself coming back to, or that has stuck out to you. I mean, I don't know, just one. There's been so many. I think just like recently, though, working in the prisons Mm. with the teenage boys, you know, we look at trauma in different populations. And then, you know, you look at trauma just even now, communal trauma with the pandemic. And then you look at trauma in, you know, an affluent community or a not so affluent community and then trauma in a prison and then how different environments can actually shape trauma and how people react to it. So I think just that was a little bit eye-opening that, you know, trauma is not trauma is not trauma. It needs to be treated differently, which we knew to begin with, but just also looking at how much the environment actually impacts how much that person can work through their trauma and process it. Yeah. And you bring up such a good point. I think socially and culturally, we're taught about the big T traumas, right? Assault, molestation, neglect. Mm -hmm. Um, But you bring up such a, uh, strong and important point that being in an adverse environment can be how is that being treated or on the on the other side if it isn't treated how is that negatively going to impact an individual right and then if you're in an adverse environment itself does that become like a compounded trauma Mm. you know Mm. such a good point it's tricky Yes, you're, yeah, like you bring up such a, uh, an important point because it's it, some of these are single event and it's it's horrible and it's 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 absolutely you know it's terrible it's traumatizing um, but in an environment it's it's ongoing mm-hmm. and and all of it, it all both all types of trauma are is is horrible for for someone to go through but you also had such a niche in the prison and with um, these adolescents. Yeah. I mean, and I think with that, it was important for, you know, if we look at providers with self-care too, like being mm. mindful of vicarious trauma. Oh, yes. Can you share a little more about that and what your experience was like being that the clinician and having to make sure you were prior- prioritizing your self-care as a clinician? That's a really important point for the podcast. Um, I mean, also like going back to the idea of, 
you know, you're working with adolescents in an adverse environment. So looking at developmentally, like they're not fully there, mm-hmm. you know, so you're working with that while you're dealing with kids who have been through so much developmentally that, you know, ideally you and I would never go through, mm-hmm. you know, so trying to find that balance and you have to be fully present for them while you're hearing things about like their families or things that they've seen, neglect that they've suffered, how they feel being in this environment, you know, looking at just kind of what's going on in the world right now and racial injustices and Mm -hmm. how that affects them and what they see versus what they don't see, you know, and finding that balance of taking your own personal biases Mm -hmm. out of it and not taking what they're telling you home with you, Mm -hmm. you know, to make Mm -hmm. sure that when you come back the next day, Mm -hmm. you're fresh and fully present for them and not bringing your own kind of issues so that you're not superimposing them upon them and adding more to their struggles. Mm -hmm. And then also just this piece of you being that person for them, right? I think especially when we work with teens and emerging adults, we really get to be an important fixture in their lives, especially as they you know, you, you said you said it very well. They're just not there yet, right? So their brain development is um, going through a huge reintegration process. Uh, they're establishing their own individuality. They're figuring out relationships, right? Um, and just to be a, a pillar and a really strong figure in that in that uh, developmental stage can be paramount. Yeah, and you and I talk about that all the time, just like how much we love working with teenagers. Yes, yes, <laughs> our little precious beings. We love yes. them. Yes. That's awesome. And favorite quote or one that really sticks out to you or resonates with you? Oh, so I, it's a little bit of a downer, I guess, but I just, I think it's really important that <laughs> there's a quote that I heard, actually one that my supervisor in grad school told me, she said, you can always go back. Mm-hmm. And that I always look at, like, if there's like a session that I have that I walk away from that I'm like, I could have been a better therapist mm-hmm. or you know, Mm. what could we have done differently? Like, I always remember that, like, you can always go back. And then when I look at sometimes what our clients are doing and, you know, we're like, what are you doing? We've talked (laughs) about this, like (laughs) what is going on? Yes. Um, I read something once that, you know, sometimes when clients kind of go through things, it's about creating a more manageable crisis than the one Mm. that they're actually going through. Mm. And I think coming And I think coming back to that a lot, especially when we look at our kids that, you know, engage in self-injurious behavior or things Mm -hmm. like that, you know, okay, well, is the self-injury more manageable for them to focus on than the 42,000 other things that are actually causing them stress? Mm -hmm. That's such a good point. Mm -hmm. I love it. Those two, I guess. Come back. Right? Yeah. It it reminds me. Yeah, I love it. It reminds me of this one that um, when I was living in Colorado, I found this just this plaque um, at a farmer's market ball, please. They still have it it's actually in the office. Um, and it's, it's if not now, when, right? Mm-hmm. So like, if you're not addressing the thing, then like, when are you going to? But like for yours, it's like, even if something felt like it didn't go right, you can always go back and visit it, repair it, try a different course, right? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. so funny that that's your quote. So you and I have talked about that, that I had that tattooed on my arm. So, huh. it's mm-hmm. so funny. yeah. <laughs> Love it. Kindred spirits. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us and bringing um, your unique experiences to the podcast. We haven't had anyone that's worked in the jail yet. So thanks for having me. Yeah. Hi, thank you for joining us. Can you share your name and how many years you've been in practice? 
Yes. So my name is Malia L. Siegel. I am a licensed clinical social worker and a registered play therapist supervisor. And I have been in schools for 10 years and Mm -hmm. private practice play therapy for three going on four years with you, which has been an amazing experience. And that doesn't, that's so understated. (laughs) Love it. Proud social worker and registered play therapist. You're kind of an anomaly and a really unique subspecialty in social work. I I think it's, that's a really important um, thing, I think, for kind of like young budding social workers. Like, I think specializing can be really powerful in our field. Um, And so you've done that and you've created such an amazing niche, which I love. Yes. I tell people I'm like, I'm, I'm learning my own uniqueness. I'm like, I'm kind of a unicorn. There's a lot of people who don't see kids for their own personal reasons. You know what I mean? Like, I think some people are intimidated. Some people are, you know, feeling like, Oh, I don't know how or what, you know, how to pivot with that. But I'm like, I love it. And um, they love you. Yeah. Love the little pals. My favorite is like when you go, right? Because the restrictions of COVID are waiting rooms closed. When you go out to the parking lot to go get them and then scamper back, holding one of their hands past my office window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually they're I'm like, I can't even keep up. They're like dashing towards the door. And I'm like, ah, please just don't hurt yourself in this short transition. Yeah. Um, and- yeah, they skip in and skip out. So cute. And your office, you know, you can, um, if you want to share a little bit, it's just, um, very atypical than a traditional office space, right? So your office is set up like a playroom, which is inviting to children because their language is play. Right. Yep. I have like a few little nooks and areas that I hope, you know, speak to all the different ages and stages of mm-hmm. kids. So, you know, I have stuff like dolls, I have like balls and basket hoops, and I have a little creativity table. I do have a sandbox. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of anything like super unique. I have like a dollhouse. Um, mm. I have a regulation station mm. um, that I saw. I wish I could like credit this person at one point. I will and I shall. Um, but it's basically a little rolly cart with three sections that has like, um, things for the breath on top, Mm. uh, things for tactile and sensory in the middle. And then at the bottom is for like movement and, you know, there's rackets and jump rope. Um, so yeah, a little something for everyone in there. I love that. I didn't even know you had that in there. So you're going to show me this. Yeah. It's behind the door. So you kind of, every time you open the door, you would miss it. But yeah. That explains it. Mm -hmm. And what brought you to the field of social work? Um, So I always knew that I wanted to support kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, I started as a psych major um, Mm -hmm. with the the idea, the uninformed idea that I could be a school psychologist um, and do whatever the vision I had at, you know, 18 was. But yeah, I just wanted to like certainly support kids in the education setting because that was a place where I really struggled to thrive. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, human behavior specialist, Dr. John Demartini says like your voids become your values. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, uh, that my void was like not having a place, like a comfy, playful space to do my deep process work. Um, so I wanted to bring that 
to schools. And so um, I definitely struggled, but track and cross country were really kind of the anchor, the thing that kind of helped propel me um, to college. And then Mm -hmm. I kind of figured out my way. Mm -hmm. Um, Your path. So yeah, that's how I landed as a social worker. You love that quote too, your voice become your value. I think that's so true Mm -hmm. um, for a lot of us social workers, you know, we've gone through a lot of our own hurdles, but then we can take what we've learned from those hurdles and make it into something that we um, bring to the room and to our clientele. Yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Have you had an experience with a client or just in being a social worker that stood out to you over the years and you find yourself coming back to or just thinking about as you, you know, reflect on being in this field? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I'm sure many clinicians say this, right? Like our clients teach us so much. Um, I think so many of mine have had like an infinite impact on me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think collectively my experience, I worked for in Newark for six or seven years um, as a school-based counselor and social worker. And that experience kind of cracked open this curiosity as far as how children's stories and their play mm-hmm. have an impact on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still remember like a few things that kind of like like it was almost like a chain reaction, but just kind of researching and like looking up interventions. And there's two big things I think that stood out as far as like what I learned during that time. The first being um, Ross Green, um, he has a model called Collaborative and Proactive Solutions. Um, He has a couple books if people are interested, Raising Human Beings and the Explosive Child. Um, And a third book, Lost at School. And his tagline, kids do well if they can, I think so simply and clearly articulated what I was feeling about kids and their challenging behavior. Um, I, I, uh, you know, people would say like, oh, I'm, you know, trying to like, not bribe kids, but they're like, oh, they're not motivated. I say that they can have this and they still don't meet X. And it's, I think when I, the kids do well if they can was like, it's not that they don't want the thing that you're dangling in front of them they don't have the skills to acquire it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that kind of helped me, you know, reframe for adults, like their expectations of kids um, Mm -hmm. based on age and skill sets and skill deficits. Um, And yeah, so it's like the challenges of the work led me to be more curious. So that was the big, one big nugget. And then the other really big thing that, you know, and we've talked a lot about is, um, synergetic play therapy. So mm-hmm. I was probably in my fifth or sixth, probably at the, towards the end of my career in Newark, where I was like feeling so burnt out. And I found these words, hyper and hypo arousal. And I was like, it even me. then I was, yeah, well, it was like it me, but I was like, it them, this, <laughs> this is all the kids like it doing this us. stuff. <laughs> it everyone. Yeah. I mean, and it is still, yeah. it's true whether people, you know, internalize it or not. But kids were playing things like, you know, army men and like there was a lot of death. And I worked in a place where people were dying from Mm -hmm. community violence or from health issues. So hypo arousal was around Mm. a lot anyway. And at that time, I still wasn't like, like maybe attuned to the fact that it was affecting me. Um, But Mm. Lisa Dion's book at that time, um, it was called Aggression and Death in, in the Playroom. 
mm-hmm. integrating extremes. I think now it's a shorter title, like aggression and play therapy. Um, that took me like on a really personal and professional journey. journey. <laughs> yeah. Just learning about how I could bring in my own stuff that there was permission for my stuff to show up like, Oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed. I'm scared. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. Um, this is scary for me, whatever, um, that my stuff could show up and that that would also be like the agent for healing for kids. Um, so being, becoming the, the, getting the certification in synergetic play therapy, I think was really a great growth experience awesome. and still is really like a touchstone for how I deal with people, period. And in your journey as a social worker, like adding that, yeah. that skill set. And I think you bring up a good point, like this author, this book, this training, there is resonance mm-hmm. with that work and things have right. started to click and make sense. And they've been able to right. translate into your work in the playroom on a micro level with your clients. And you're able to see um, the deep healing and improvement with your, with your little kiddos. Yeah. And I think maybe you and I've talked to, it's almost like this backward validation. Like we kind of like go with the flow sometimes as we practice, we're like, we, we, I haven't read this in a book yet, but this feels right. You know what I mean? And then you take a training and you're like, ah, oh, here it is in science and words. Like my, my intuition yeah. was right. Or my, you know, yes. whatever I was following had some roots in reality. I love that you say that. I feel as though that's exactly like things have been like clicking into place over the last, I would say like year or two for me in terms of like, this is totally in alignment and I can quote theorists and um, inspiring professionals that have come before me um, and really just adopt language that connects with, again, what I know intuitively in my heart to be the direction I want to practice therapy. And so it's so funny, you know, um, I think kind of like as we get to be more seasoned social workers, I feel totally comfortable and confident being like, here's what I do and here's what I'm great at. And it's really okay if I'm not the right fit, but here's someone that does that stuff. So let's explore, let's have them do a consultation on the case or, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah, I think it, it's a good feeling to be like, I, I know myself in this way as a clinician and mm-hmm. these theories and these approaches in alignment with, with me. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah, like it, it just gives that, <laughs> that language for like, you know, it. And it, I, it's the left brain meeting the right brain, right? I think so much of what, of what we do is a right brain process. It's it's relational. It's like heart centered. It's mm-hmm, sitting mm-hmm. with, and then mm-hmm. you get these books with the left and the logic and the reasoning. Mm-hmm. And you are like, yes, this is what I needed. And that's sometimes what your clients, I mean, you work with teens. So that's what their parents sometimes need too. They could say like, well, I love it. You know, so-and-so has a person to talk to, but, and it's like, but this is where they meet. This is where like the relationship and then the science meet and where you're going to get results. Yeah. And I think because you and I work with such um, precarious developmental stages, right? Like we can teach them so much about their emotional and mental well-being. I know a lot of my work with teens, exactly what you're saying, let's sit with it. Let's um, describe the sensations of our emotions. Ooh, I feel it prickly in my throat. And I just noticed I took a deep breath. Are you Mm -hmm. feeling that too? Right? Like that. Mm-hmm. invaluable in terms of teaching yeah. again children and teens and emerging adults you know just those really primitive stages of development um about this right i mean yeah we, in our 30s are mastering it <laughs> yes i know yeah 
Yeah. But and it feels, uh, and it feels good. And like, we're mastering it. And like you said too, there's also this confidence of like what you don't know as well. Yeah. So it's like, you can say like, Oh, I'm just not, that's not my jam. Totally. I think when you start out in any field, right. Like you kind of want to try to try everything and yeah. see what you're good at and be like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take it on. And for better or worse, like you realize like, Oh, maybe I shouldn't. And now, like, as we get older, it's just a confidence to be like, Oh, that's not how I work. Like there are certainly clinicians out there that do yeah. do what you're asking. Yeah. It's and you also either. like, um, and I love this, like you teaching now, right. Like, um, mm-hmm. you know, budding social workers in um, undergrad and graduate level, mm-hmm. you're able to say, here's, here's what my experience has been, you know, my years through practice. And here's what I know has worked in my, in my room with my clients. Um, right. I'm going to give you a part of, you know, my, my skill set and knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And a quote that you find yourself coming back to that really sums up the essence of being a social worker. Mm, this one was hard only because, I mean, there's so many, um, I think this shifts for me, depending on the season of life that I'm in. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's so many great ones about like the benefits of play or the efficacy Mm -hmm. of meaningful relationships. It just takes one adult, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was kind of stuck between two and I will go with the shorter one only because, I, for a couple reasons. One, I just really like it. Um, and it, there's like a connection. So when I was in high school, I took Latin and it, I, w- I did terribly in it, but I think it set the groundwork for like being able to learn other languages later. Um, but th- we read like the Aeneid or something by Virgil mm-hmm. and one of the quotes and it's translated from Latin and, and there, it shows up in so many different ways, which I also think is like beautiful, right? Sometimes about languages that like one interpretation comes out this way or that way. Um, But this one, the translation that I chose um, is not a stranger to misfortune. I know how to help those in trouble. Mm, I love that. Yeah, definitely does summarize what it is to be a social worker. Welcome. Can you share with us your name and how many years you've been in social work practice for? Hi, my name is Sarah Velez. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I have been in the social work field for about eight years. Um, I uh, graduated from Monmouth University in 2012 and then pretty much immediately started as a crisis clinician working with teens and families and then took a little break to raise some babies and then came back to the field um, working with Jackie and Anna at the Therapy Institute. Um, And I'm primarily the addiction specialist there. I also work with couples and, you know, individuals. um, But my passion is really working with um, people struggling with addiction and in recovery. Amazing. Thank you. I love that. And MU alum. Oh, yeah. (laughs) What were some of the reasons you decided to enter the field? What interests you about social work? Yeah, so I actually went to undergrad for something completely different. I went to University of Miami for international studies and Spanish. And I found myself after college just really lost and was um, actually active in my own addiction with alcoholism Mm -hmm. and found myself in recovery. um, And, you know, just through that experience of finding sobriety and just wanting to kind of lead more of an authentic life um, 
was really drawn towards a social work program. I didn't know exactly what that would look like when I began grad school, but I just knew I wanted to be, you know, working in a field where I was helping people, where I was kind of in a healing role. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was actually an international um, and community development major at Monmouth. So I really did not have a clinical, I didn't really see myself working in a so, so much of a clinical setting. Um, but just kind of really then was more drawn after graduating towards working in more of a clinical setting um, and not so much in like the macro level of social work. So I really love the field. It's very versatile. Um, you know, I love just working as a therapist. I love um, just kind of, you know, that I found so, somewhat of a niche, you know, working in yeah. addiction with couples and families. And it's really been super fulfilling. Absolutely. And there's such power and bravery in you sharing your own story and how that has really helped shape and mold um, your career trajectory. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Is there a client or an experience that you've had throughout your years of practice that you kind of find yourself coming back to or an indirect interaction you've had that has, again, just really imprinted and, and influenced you as a clinician? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've, you know, worked with so many amazing clients. I love, you know, I love working with addicts and and alcoholics. They're really, you know, just such, such amazing, um, you know, really just creative, intelligent, really just, you know, powerful, resilient people. And, um, through that experience, you know, I really wanted to create somewhat of a of a safe space specifically for women struggling with addiction. You know, from my own journey, I always found such a comfort being with other women in recovery. Um, you know, just from my own kind of personal trauma and just just being sometimes out in the world as a woman can be overwhelming. And, you know, I always was drawn towards a community of women. And so with the support of Jackie and Anna, you know, kind of had this dream of a group called Sober Sisters. And um, it was just it, you know, it's kind of been on hold during COVID. We're hoping to restart it, um, you know, maybe in the spring. But, you know, that group was super powerful. It was one of the first it was the first group I led at the Therapy Institute. And um, just being able to create a safe space for these women who some were 12 step based, some were not some kind of had experience either with smart recovery, which is um, different than an AA type setting. It's more kind of peer led. And there's also, you know, there's different avenues of recovery. I never kind of say there's only one way to get sober. Mm -hmm. Um, But so sober sisters was really kind of for anyone at any, you know, um, phase of their recovery, whether they were newly sober, one woman had 10 years of sobriety, or maybe even 12 years, you know, so there was some long term recovery, as well as women who were just really, you know, within days or months of of finding sobriety. Um, Just, I found it to be super impactful that these women also formed friendships outside of the group. Um, I know one night they went to a seance, which was pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) And, you know, so they they really had fun because for me, such a big part of my recovery is Mm. it's important to have fun in sobriety. You know, like sobriety recovery has to look more appealing than the, you know, train wreck of addiction. And sometimes that's a hard transition to leave behind 
drinking and drugs and that lifestyle because so much of our world and society tells us, you know, like it's normal to drink or it's cool to drink. And like for, you know, for a lot of us that couldn't really find that happy balance of, you know, drinking like a lady, as my mom always suggest I try (laughs) sobriety can be so fun and like there was even you know some of the women went there was a women's um sobriety conference in Atlantic City some of them went to that like just finding ways to have fun and feel supported is super important yes and you bring up so many good parts of even just being a woman and connecting right like I, I know for a lot of us like our friendships tend to be the backbone to that yeah. pulled us up and also just we're in such a trying time for women as you know a lot of women are trying to juggle being at home and managing their household family significant others um, and jobs and their own mental health and their own physical health and that of their extended families um so i can oh. imagine that you know having yeah. support especially during this time is so important for those in recovery totally and don't get me wrong, I, I find a lot of men in recovery also are super, so have been super supportive in my journey. And, you know, like there's kind of a saying in the recovery world, men stick with the men and the women with the women, just because, you know, things can happen. There's, you know, the the rehab romances or whatever, and I've done all that. And there's nothing, you know, but I'm just, there's something in connecting with, yes. with women or men with men, that there's a bond, there's a commonality, there's a safety there. And that to like to be able to create that, that safe space has really been just an amazing part of, of this journey. Absolutely. And, and for a lot of us, you know, I mean, I think everyone in some form has micro traumas, moderate traumas, big T traumas. Yeah. Um, but you bring up this word of safety, and that is our biological imperative is to experience safety and connection within relationships. And so it's a really beautiful thing that Sober Sisters was able to um, create that for those that group. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it was really a fun experience. And, you know, I love working with individuals in in recovery, too. And I've even had some couples, you know, that to me is really exciting, too, when kind of recovery can be introduced into couples work. Um, and sometimes the couples come in not really knowing that there's an addiction or or codependency going on. I really love working kind of with the other side of it with the family members um, who are suffering through their loved one's addiction. So to be able to talk about codependency or, you Mm -hmm. know, boundaries, or again, like those, like creating that safety within families and within couples, that's super, super powerful and and really healing too. So, and I think something that, you know, we've all been in some ways affected by addiction, um, whether it's a family member, a friend, you know, a significant other, So to be able to kind of bring that insight into the couple's work or into, you know, individual work, even that's really been really, yeah, too. That's amazing. Um, And one quote that you love or find yourself coming back to, or just really resonates with you right now. Yeah. So it's that I don't, I should have brought my mug. I'm a big coffee drinker and I have this mug at home that says, um, just when the caterpillar thought its life was over, it became a butterfly. And for me, it's like so meaningful because, you know, sometimes it's, it's, you know, there's also this saying like it's darkest right before the dawn. And like sometimes before we find ourselves in a place of seeking recovery, like things look pretty dark and things can kind of feel like the world is ending. I know for me, when I was 
22 finding myself in sobriety, I was like, the world is over. How am I going to live without drinking? You know, so it can feel like you're giving up so much by seeking recovery, but it's this whole new world. It's like really life is just beginning, you know, and for that caterpillar, like thinking it's about to die and then emerging as this beautiful new creature. And that's just so much of, you know, the beauty of working with people in, you know, in recovery and just through all kinds of phases of their healing and, and just, you know, discovering hope and, and really recovery. So, yeah. Thank you, Sarah. I I really appreciate you joining us. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. So welcome. Can you share your name and how many years you've been in social work practice? Sure. My name is Anna Zonin. I've been in social work practice. I think it's now about five years. I graduated 2016. So close. Yes, about five years. Um, I'm an LCSW. I graduated from Monmouth University. Um, You know, uh, worked at um, IOP, PHPs. I've worked at uh, emergency rooms, at um, psych emergency rooms and hospitals, and now I own this wonderful practice with you called the Therapy Institute um, Group Practice, <laughs> where um, you know we treat everybody from little ones to older ones and everything in between. Great. And what brought you to the field of social work? Um, I guess it's a complicated question. Maybe it's an easy question, but I think I just always was curious to know what other people's experiences are, you know, how um, their mind works, how their heart works, like what is it really that goes on inside a human being and how do they move through life? How do they look at things? You know, how do they experience life? Um, And with that, um, just having and this, um, you know, desire or want to truly just help people as corny as it sounds I think people say that all the time but that's really it you know just truly being with someone um, through um, difficulties and seeing if there's anything um, that you can do through the process where you can help them move through some of these things and they're not so that they're not alone you know because I think at the end of the day um, nobody should be that way yeah And is there a client or experience that you've had that has kind of stuck with you or you find yourself coming back to or has influenced your, you as a clinician? So I was thinking about this and I was like, gosh, there's so many experiences, like actual moments that I can think of with so many various, you know, clients, the ones I'm treating now um, and ones that had prior that just stick out that I feel, you know, were impactful. Um, I always go back to, I think if it, it does something for you as well as the person like that, like really sticks to me that if it really moves you to look at life a different way, or it, um, you know, um, impacts uh, your practice with the person and in, you know, in your life, then that's something that's uh, profound. um, And you have to be able to acknowledge that. Um, But I actually went back to a completely different thing that I thought of. um, And I go back to this a lot. Um, when I worked at the IOP, um, the, the higher level of care, um, for about a year and a half. Um, so it was, you know, it was a very chaotic environment, uh, difficult place to work, but rewarding. Um, you know, there was, we ran groups in, you know, three, four group, four, three or four groups a, a day sometimes. And it's an in-between. So you can see people move forward and get better, or you could see people kind of you know, go the other way. Um, and it was with, you know, men- for mental health and substance abuse. Um, there was crises, there was all these things constantly going on. So it was very hectic. And um, 
I remember, I, I don't even know if it was me or my roommate at the time, we were just like, we need to do something different. And, you know, maybe we need to tell these people that we see day in and day out for long periods of time, how much we appreciate them, how much actually they're giving to us. And maybe that can empower them to feel better in their recovering mental health and addiction. Um, so we, we, we came up with this thing called Client Appreciation Day. And we got all the other clinicians involved and everybody had these amazing ideas of what we were going to do for this one day where we were going to tell the clients how much we appreciated them. Um, so it was this day in May and every single room was set up as a different um, experience. You know, the one room we just had food, this other room we had painting and we had easels and art set up. This other room they were planting things, I think it was lavender or something they were planting. And this other room uh, was karaoke. And um, we had bubbles outside, you know, <laughs> during break, they were all outside playing, uh, doing bubbles. And when I think of that day, it was, there was so much joy and exuberance in all of these people's like faces and lives that we don't so seldom see because we're really processing and going through like really harrowing, awful things day in and day out where we're just experiencing pain. And that day was just pure happiness and joy from these people. Like they were so happy, every single one of them. Um, and I close my eyes and I just think of them singing, singing karaoke, you know, and um, the first picture that actually comes to my mind was of this one client that actually is no longer with us. Um, but I, I see his face just full of happiness, you know, and I keep going back to that because it's so important to, um, you know, cultivate that, 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 that yes, there's, there are these difficult things that go on through these people's lives and we're there for them through those hard things, but um, we can also bring about this joy and exuberance and remind them that they still have the capacity to feel that and can, and can so easily access it. Because they were all, I, I don't think there was one of them that wasn't um, excited for that day and didn't have like the best time. And it was just a great change, I guess, to see them just loosen up and be themselves and enjoy life. Um, yeah, and what a cool idea to have a day for them, right? Yeah. Versus like a day for like their treatment. Truly, yes, it was. And I remember it was like a, the room was full of people. And I think I got it was in there were tiny rooms. So I, I think I, I got on top of a chair and we made this announcement to like tell them how much they mean to us as well, like how much they give us um, through allowing us to, you know, be part of some of their hardships and their stories. And then just like, go ahead, enjoy life for a day. Just, you know, be happy. <laughs> yeah. I had a conversation with a client recently and he was sharing his excitement about a new job. And I was like, um, you know, my day was content. It was a neutral day, but then when he, his face lit up and he shared the energy of that exchange, it just lit me up. And I thanked him. I was like, you know, my day was good. It was neutral. Um, but now I feel excitement and joy because that's what you gave to me. So you brought right. up a good point. You know, you use the word harrowing that we use all these, you know, we always have, mainly our job is to hold space for really hard, painful mm -hmm. emotions. But it, in the light of that, we also get to experience the other side, which is like deep gratitude and light and um, joy, excitement. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we forget that sometimes, you know, and I, I think we, um, there's a thing about laughter in therapy that's, um, I almost want to like explore that sometimes. Cause sometimes even I don't, I, sometimes while we're, sometimes I'm talking about something extremely difficult in session, I don't know, some silly thing happens or I say something a certain way or a client does something and we just break out into giggles and laughs, you know what I mean? Um, and just, 
you know, and and I think I've seen that in in life as well. You know, sometimes when we're sitting shiva, um, you know, I'm Jewish, so after somebody passes and it's this heavy mourning period, but um, there's also laughter, there's also joy, and um, perhaps looking at it that way is that you know there are all these uh, uh, seasons to life. Um, there is that season to to mourn and to grieve and to have you know pain and sorrow, but there's also a season for joy and laughter and light. And sometimes I think when I have a hard time, um, and it's been a kind of a heavy, heavy load, I think for a lot of us uh, holding a lot of people's stuff the last year, um, I, I go back to that moment um, of them having that happiness and joy. And I sometimes even just take the clients that I have now and imagine them dancing or laughing or being happy. Um, you know, and want, I mean, I obviously want them to be that way, but I, I imagine to see what it would be like for them to, to feel that and, you know, cross fingers that we get there. <laughs> Along the journey. Along and the journey. A quote that maybe is your favorite or that has resonated with you along your, your journey of being a social worker. Um, this is, this is the quote that I really love. Um, your greatest responsibility is to use your voice there are so many people, too many people in our world who are never heard, even when they scream. So I think as social workers, um, you know, it's our, it's our responsibility and our duty to provide and be the voice for the, for, for the many that don't have the capacity to do that. That's one of my favorite ones. Absolutely. Another, another clinician brought that and I was like, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. So thanks for joining us. Can you share your name and how Thank many you. have been in social work practice? Sure. Thanks for, um, you know, thanks for having me on and, uh, you know, asked me to do this. Um, so I'm Joseph Deb and, uh, and I've been in social work practice for about uh, 13 years now. Um, mm-hmm. July, this July will be my 10th year in private practice. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. You have a lot of years in private practice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did you sure. know that you um, always wanted to be a social worker or can you, is there something that kind of led you to the profession? Yeah, no, like kind of, I would say always, I feel like I had this piece in, uh, you know, the high school years when it's like, Hey, what am I going to do? And I was, uh, going to go either to culinary school to become a chef. Cause I had a family, you know, lineage of chefs and I like to cook, or mm-hmm. I was going to become a therapist. Um, and, uh, you know, I took the therapist route obviously. So yeah. I love it. <laughs> I, um, I love to cook too. And, and there's such an intersectionality of our mental health and cooking and our enteric nervous system and how that impacts our uh, mental health. So, Oh, absolutely. And I had met with, um, there's a local place that does, you know, like cooking classes. And I had met with them about doing a, a mindfulness cooking class just for people to like cook and taste, you know, there's so much of your senses. Um, I haven't gotten it off the ground yet, but it's something, you know, in the pipeline. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's a super cool idea. And you know, for us that, that do love to cook, it's a creative outlet. So I always think of myself as an artist, you know, uh, it's absolutely. And it's funny because my eight-year-old just told me that the other day, cause my, my kids and my wife is an artist and I'm like, I don't have good art school. She's like, dad, you like to cook. That's an art. I'm like, you're right. You know, yes, so, that's awesome. Well, um, it's, um, it's good you're here, right? Cause male social workers, as we were just kind of chuckling about before we began, um, a little bit of an anomaly and hard to come by, right? It's a pretty female dominated, um, uh, profession, but you guys are so needed and so important. Yeah. Um, you know, it is, I would say it is, um, you know, a blessing, um, you know, to be in the field. Um, but, and to be a, you know, a male, I would say it's one of the, 
you know, like fewer professions that is female, you know, uh, dominated. Um, but it's just been, um, you know, really nice to experience that. But also I've just been so admired over my years in practice, how many women seek out male therapists, um, you know, for a variety of different reasons. You know, I do get the calls a lot, you know, I'm looking for my son or, you know, uh, an adult male who's like, I need a you know, therapist. I connect better with a male, but um, just admired at the, um, the amount of women who, you know, feel like they can connect better and heal better working with a man. So. I agree. And also there's um, such healing that comes from the relationship with your therapist. And so it, you may bring things to that exchange with that specific client that they need more on an unconscious level in, in order to move themselves forward. Um, mm-hmm. I know our couples therapist is male and I, and I specifically chose that because I wanted that different vibe and perspective um, in yeah. the room with us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's, you know, interesting that you say the relationship piece, because as you sent me the questions and I was thinking about it, that's really, you know, um, the crux I feel of therapy, you know, even when I talk to people, you know, for a referral, it's like, yeah, hey, listen, like you can come in, we can meet, but really it's about you finding the right, you yeah. know, the right click, the right person that you feel comfortable with. Yeah. And there's just synchronicity when it happens. Um, I think it's felt on that cellular level you know, and it's unspoken between the clinician and the client. Um, it just mm-hmm. is, we orient towards safety, right? When we walk into a therapeutic room, hopefully. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't need to be said. And, but it's funny, like as a therapist going to therapy, I like constantly make sure I tell my, my therapist like what, what role she fills because there's, there's, there's such power in the meta processing of that. And that is like pure vulnerability, you know, hundred percent, hundred percent. And actually, like I said, like part of, you know, um, I was thinking as I was thinking of the client that you asked us to kind of think about, yeah. you know, really, you can feel that kind of connection. I've always felt sometimes in like the handshake at the end of a mm-hmm. session when you have the, the power and I always shake and it's like, and it's like just that like genuine body language and like, thank you. Like, I didn't want to go through this. This is really tough stuff. Yes. I, I've, but I feel a little bit better and thanks for your help. Um, and with this whole pandemic thing, like, man, I really do miss those handshakes. I keep telling my clients, like, that. you know, I was like, you know, I'd rather be shaking your hand than taking your temperature and hopefully we'll be back to that soon. <laughs> I love but, that. uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's something you've coined in your, in your sessions and major. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's beautiful. Definitely. And is there a client that you find yourself kind of coming back to through your years of practice that has imprinted you or an experience that, you know, has, has shaped who you are, um, over, over your time in private practice. Yeah. You know, I would say even before private practice, there was a lot of, you know, clients. And I think it's just such a gift. I think that we have to be able to, to do this and to be able to walk with people through these journeys, you know, um, you know, I think there's a big misconception in society that therapists are advice givers. I even have that from like my own family. Like, well, what do you tell them? And it's like, it's not like our role, like our role is to walk with them and to make them feel safe enough and comfortable enough to explore these, you know, um, these parts of them that are, that are injured and, and, and the pain and, um, you know, uh, sometimes horrific events that they've gone through. Um, so, you know, I was thinking about, it and I, I really feel blessed and lucky enough to work with so many clients who have, you know, have gone through some of that and healed from it. Um, but, you know, there's one that was, was sticking out, you know, as I did it, um, you know, uh, just, it just brought to me kind of the light of, um, 
you know, kind of the push for therapy, like you don't have to suffer so long because the, the person I work with, um, unfortunately suffered for, you know, with some PTSD stuff for over 20 years because wow. of what they experienced. Um, and it was ironic in that, like it was right around the time of Superstorm Sandy. Mm. Um, I got a phone call shortly after, um, uh, you know, uh, looking the, the th- from a therapist actually who was working with this client um, and had done amazing work, um, which I really think was the framework for the work that I wound up doing with them. Um, got them in, like basically the client was triggered by the storm. And I think it was more physiological because we know that trauma is stored in the body um, and brought them to like a help center. um, And it just brought back all of these um, memories and emotions and things um, from an event that they had experienced. Unfortunately, the the client had witnessed um, uh, a family member being murdered and was part of a you know, um, uh, basically a shootout, like someone wow. had entered, you know, uh, the home and shot, uh, and killed one of his family members and, and then also others, you know, and, and was present for that. Um, and really wasn't, you know, uh, wasn't supported after that event and, um, really carried this around forever. And it was the storm that really kind of opened this up. So, um, this client did amazing work with this other therapist to feel safe enough, to feel comfortable enough. And then the therapist called me and said, you know, I really think this person can benefit from, from EMDR, which I'm, you know, certified in. They had, EMDR. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, had heard about it and was like, Hey, I, I'd like to kind of, you know, pass this off and see if you can do some work. Um, and it was just, um, it was just remarkable the work that was done, you know, um, you know, you can see it like the layers being peeled back and like after sessions, like just these bricks that seem to be lifted off of, you know, the individual, um, and just the way that this event impacted them, you know, not just from there, but, you know, throughout, because it wasn't dealt with like throughout the course of life, you know, and other things, cause you know, we feel this, this happens and then we start to develop, you know, these negative thoughts and beliefs about ourselves and, you know, had all of the classic PTSD symptoms, the nightmares, the flashbacks, the hyper arousal, the intrusive thoughts. Um, and to me, it was just remarkable that, that through the work, um, it started to like be pulled back and those, uh, those memories, and it, it was the way, you know, it's drawn up when you, you know, when you get trained in some of these things, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that it wasn't, it wasn't as painful and wasn't as, as strong and and the belief the guilt um that they felt because of this um started to be you know peeled back um and those beliefs changed which really was remarkable in that it opened up all of these other memories and all these other networks um that weren't being acknowledged or these parts of them that that had such positive attributes and that had such strengths uh, but weren't being there because this mm. guilt really kind of plugged that up for lack of a better term um that's such a good point with like the other parts that like maybe were also fragile and wounded like they they didn't have space to do the work they needed because there was again so many layers but then also the attributes of those parts in conjunction to the painful parts that needed to be addressed Absolutely. And then, you know, the, the recognition, like, yeah, I got this and I'm good at that. And, um, but to, and to your point of the relationships, you know, um, it it really, you know, this, this client actually went on to, to do some really great work in advocacy Mm. in training, um, because part of the issue was that when this event happened, that law enforcement came in and things and, 
they didn't really recognize the symptoms. You know, this, this individual was in shock, was suffering with trauma um, and didn't really get the help um, and law enforcement and people, you know, uh, rightfully so like just missed that. Um, so they actually went into some advocacy work and did some educational training videos and things Beautiful. that were used with law enforcement to help them understand signs of PTSD and that, and, and that process in itself was just, even further healing. But, you know, to your point about the relationships, really, you know, what it taught me and was just so interesting in that we can have all as therapists, all these tools in our toolbox, but we really need to remember that it's the relationship um, that is because it was the relationship that this individual had with the previous therapist that left them safe enough and comfortable enough to then do the work with me. And, And then all the other individuals that they met along this healing process that really helped them um, to get to the next level and to heal and to feel good about themselves. So, um, you know, sometimes as therapists, we're like, yo, I got to get this tool and I got to learn this and I got to do that. But like really remembering that while you do need those, it's, you know, that relationship that's really so important. Yeah. Just coming back to holding space for our clients. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's the other thing it taught me too. You mentioned space was just how important those little nuances are, Mm -hmm. you know, the therapist. um, And I learned that from this client because Mm -hmm. we had met in several different offices, several different spaces that I had. Mm -hmm. Um, And now because of them, I really try not to, unless, you know, it's a large thing. I really try not to move my office. I had moved several offices and now I've just renewed a lease and I try to stay there because we were doing this work And in EMDR, there's, you know, there's a container and things like that. And to hold some of these images and memories. Um, And it was that first spot where like, this is the container and it's on the other side of that wall. And I know it's there. So when I moved spaces, when I moved offices, it was hard for them to adjust and to, and and we got there, but it wasn't the same. And it just made me realize, wow, like you just need to make sure and pay attention to all those little nuances and how they can impact clients. I agree. The vibe of the offices is, is super integral to our work. Definitely. And, and just a quote that you feel like really um, resonates with you or you find yourself coming back to over your years in practice, um, or maybe even just one that you love right now. Yeah, no, that is, I love, I love quotes. I mean, for me, between quotes and music and um, they're just uh, sometimes, so I could have a ton of them, but there's one really recently i've really got in over the last couple of years um into yoga and really have enjoyed that and with the pandemic i've I've really enjoyed going down to beach yoga shout out to west end beach yoga which does a great job all summer long there was one teacher though and and it was ironic she taught and she always had this quote at the end of her her practice and i was like i I would always try to remember it i get my car and i like type it i'm like no that's not it (laughs) So I finally reached out to her and I, I asked, and I just think it's a little bit longer, but I just think it, it embodies um, kind of like, you know, uh, what we like to be and what to do. So um, it's two parts. So it says, you know, um, the first part she had on her own and the other part she took from somewhere else. So may we learn to be accepting of our limitations, truthful in our commitment to do our best and content regardless of the outcome. And then the second part, being, um, may all beings be happy and free from suffering. Uh, may my own words, thoughts, and actions contribute to the happiness and freedom for all. And I think for that second part, like when we get there, like we're all going to be out of work, but that's going to be, a, that's going to be, that's going to be a good thing. Like I strive to be out of work. Cause that means like we just live in a better place, so to speak with that's less awesome. suffering. So 
Thanks for sharing all that with us, Joe. I appreciate you being here. No problem. Thank you for having me. So welcome. Can you share with us your name and how many years you've been in social work practice? Uh, my name is Noreen Iqbal, and I have been a social worker for 15 and a half years. Beautiful. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Did you know you always wanted to be a social worker, or was it something that you know you stumbled across or came to? Honestly, I like the the idea. Of, you know, I'm a helper. My personality has always been very much about that, and um, so I knew I wanted to go into a profession where I would directly impact people's lives very early. Yeah, um, and hence I chose social work. Yes. Yeah, it kind of embodies and covers like all bases. Yeah. And also I think like the whole social justice piece and the advocacy piece and the whole, you know, I'm a therapist, that piece, you know, the mental health piece. So I felt like it was very encompassing versus like a counselor, you know? Yeah. Thank you for bringing the social justice and advocacy pieces to the podcast. Those are super crucial right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes. And is there a client experience or just an experience in general throughout your professional years that you found yourself coming back to or has really resonated with you and shaped you as a clinician? Yeah. So, you know, very early on, I, so I, um, my parents are from Pakistan and I was born and raised in North Mm -hmm. Jersey. And, um, you know, I wanted to become a therapist so that, you know, there would be a therapist. So I would be a therapist for South Asians, right? Mm-hmm. I speak a few different languages and, um, you know, throughout my career, I've seen a lot of young women, mm-hmm. you know, I, I always wanted to be that therapist that I wish I had when yeah. I was younger, when I was yeah. in college and struggling, you know, Absolutely. So I always, um, you know, I sought out to be that and, you know, I became that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, I see a lot of college age, young women, you know, women struggling in relationships or even with their childhoods or even trying to come to terms with their identity, right? Um, Racial trauma, all Mm -hmm. of that. So Mm -hmm. I, um, you know, so I think it's been a great, like the greatest honor of my life is to be on like this journey with my clients, you know, Um, who, who are just trying to, to figure it out, you know, trying to figure out how to mold two identities so that, you know, you don't feel torn or broken or as if like you're betraying your parents or, you know, um, or your ancestors or, you know, and just like trying to pave your own path. So that, that, that's what I would say, you know, and I also do a lot of um, premarital counseling. So oh, I do that. Yeah. Save your marriage before it starts. I, I use the simple platform. I love that. So I basically, you know, so that way, you know, I help my clients see if this is like a good idea, if it's not, if it's good for them, you know, versus like signing up for something because it's good for your parents or signing up for Mm -hmm. something because it's good for society or whether you're settling, you know, yeah, yeah. those are, yeah. These questions are you answering? I, um, I also specialize in emerging adults. So I love that you talked about that age group and just like life transitions, you know, I feel like there's no handbook out there. And, um, you know, I, I find a lot of joy in working with that population. Yeah, me too. And you, and you touched on so many um, key parts of who they are, uh, seeking their own individuality, exploring uh, platonic and romantic relationships, answering that question of, you know, what, what am I choosing and who is it for? Yeah. Um, and even like, you know, making friends in adulthood. 
Yeah. That's huge. You know, yeah. and then like, you know, I, I, I have a lot of clients who are young moms and just trying to really, you know, understand mothering with like your own childhood and your own, like, you know, baggage yeah. that you do bring forward and yes. what worked for what didn't work for you in your childhood, but then now you're seeing it emerge in your own parenting. Yes, absolutely. And you're also bringing up these themes like epigenetics, like what has been passed down along the lineage, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's That's awesome. Um, Yeah. You have such a um, unique and needed niche too, you know? Yeah, so, you know, I built, I own a group practice. I have about 30, um, I have a team of about 30 clinicians and, you know, all of us have our own niche and I'm a very, I'm a huge believer in niche based therapy because right. I feel like it works, you know, when right. your therapist understands you, knows you, you know, um, specializes in what you're coming in for. It's a game changer versus just being like a generalist therapist, you know? I agree a hundred percent. Um, you know, we don't go to, the, you know, primary care doctor for, um, heart issues, right? We go to the heart doctor because the heart doctor specializes in that. And we don't go to, you know, I mean, yeah, you might go for some routine stuff. Um, But I do agree that, and and I wish that was more emphasized in um, undergrad or master level program um, to really start to hone clinicians into, you know, um, strong uh, therapists and scholars and, you know, macro level um, practitioners because we as social workers have a lot of power and a lot of um, knowledge to offer, you know, um, whether it's in the therapeutic room or whether we're doing policy and administrative work. Right. Um, So I think like, you know, in grad school, they don't offer that, but I think once you're out and you're practicing, I think it's up to us and our responsibility to know ourselves enough to know what type of client we like to work with. You know, yeah. and expand on that knowledge. Yeah. And I think that's where like really good supervision comes in, even post internship level, right? Like I yep. know I have like general supervisor and I know I have like one for EMDR, like because yep. it helps shape you as a clinician. And and the great part about, you know, kind of what you're saying is like you can constantly like remold yourself like every 10 years. You can like bring on another modality and that can Absolutely. Help, you like, know. you know, I have um clinicians who loved working with kids, but once they had kids. They're like, you know, this is not my thing anymore, mm-hmm. you know? And then maybe um, they want to focus more on like postpartum stuff, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And then you have totally. to be trained in that. And then, you know, yeah. because, you know, life has seasons, exactly. even our own lives as clinicians, right? Yeah. So it's like, you have to know yourself en- enough to know what season you're in. And that's Absolutely. when your own therapy comes in. Yeah. You know, huge advocate for all therapists should have a good therapist, yes. you know, who, who helps you discover that you know? Yes. Yeah. I love it. You brought up so many good points, um, that are key for social workers and social work. Home. So thank you for all that. Cool. And, um, favorite quote or one that you're really loving right now, uh, that summarizes some of our work as, as social workers. So, you know, I think one of the biggest, I'm a social worker and I try to bring that into my workspace in terms of, you know, I am the founder and the leader of a big team, you know, so I try to bring that in terms of like fair pay, a good non-toxic workplace, you know, so I think one of the quotes that I live by and that I'm very, you know, um, 
it's like, I live my life and this is how I run my business. And this is, you know, is, um, you know, want for others, what you want for yourself. Mm. You know, um, I think that all of us want to work in positive, like good workplaces, you know, where you grow, where your growth is focused on, where you're nurtured and supported and nourished, you know? And so I wanted that. So I set out and created that and I do that for my clinicians. So like, it's just how I live my life, like want for others, what you would want for yourself, you know? And um, yeah, so that's something that I- And what a great message to be able to give to other clinicians and then also your clients. Absolutely. You know, I I do believe like, you know, it comes back to you tenfold, you know? And even if it doesn't like, like at the end of the day, like you did what was right, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone. Yeah. So I so appreciate you joining and sharing all your insights. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So welcome. Can you share with us your name and how many years you've been in social work practice? Sure. My name is Geraldine Vigiani, but everybody calls me Jerry. And uh, in total, I've been in practice for 12 years um, in my own private practice for four. Amazing. Yeah. What brought you to the field of social work? Did you think, did you find that it was something that you always were interested in? Did you stumble across it? Did you come to it in the dream? (laughs) Um, So I feel like I've always been a helper. Mm -hmm. Um, Matter of fact, I have a twin brother who gave me a little uh, figurine of the two of us in a boat together. And he's, Mm -hmm. And I'm in the front of the boat, uh, driving us along. So, um, you know, I've always wanted that. And then through my own struggles, uh, with being a a woman and a lot of times what that entails, uh, either traumatic experiences or just life experience in general. Um, I've always wanted to do, um, uh, work with women. So to empower them, uh, to help them to be their best selves. And so that brought me to where I am today. So a little bit of struggles, some delay in just life. Uh, so this is a second career for me cool. and, uh, yeah, really okay. excited about being able to do it. Yes. It's the best. Is there a client or experience that has stuck out to you throughout your years of practice that has help shape or mold you or um, that you find yourself coming back to and thinking about time and time again? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so with that idea of always uh, wanting to help women, um, my journey to get to private practice had led me through an agency where um, we provided a higher level of support um, for women who were really really, really struggling either with suicidality or traumatic experiences. Um, So while I worked there and then continue to work in my practice today, uh, the women that came to me, it was like the stuff that they would tell me was from like a horror movie, Mm -hmm. things that would tear down even the healthiest person. And yet they were still here. They were still coming for help. They were still showing up, even thriving, right? Mm -hmm. Working, having a family. um, And they just still really wanted help. And there was this one woman in particular um, who I'm working still in my practice today, um, a young lady. 
and she had uh, been abused by her father, her stepfather. She was neglected by her mother and her sister uh, was um, one of the perpetrators as well, would kind of get in on the abuse. And it was physical, it was sexual, it was verbal, emotional. Um, and sometimes I would just want to cry, like, um, through her story. And it took her a long time to trust me, um, enough to be able to even start to divulge some of that, um, trauma itself. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times when we tried to go there, um, she would have behaviors around that, um, a lot of anger and rage. Uh, so, um, you know, step by step, uh, she's, uh, it took, like I said, a while for her to engage, um, but she's always worked hard, really, really hard. Um, and she finally agreed six months ago to start doing EMDR, which is a modality that helps people who has with trauma. Yeah. Um, and uh, we had done a lot of resourcing and a lot of prep work with that. Mm -hmm. And um, she finally felt strong enough and trusted me enough that I wouldn't let anything bad happen to her. Mm. And um, so we've started to do it. Um, and she is just blooming and blossoming. Yeah. And yeah, just like really yes. deep stuff, letting go of that rage, letting go of that anger. So powerful. Yeah, definitely. And so this is what keeps me doing the things yeah. that I do. Like, I, know. I can't even say she's just really doing great. Mm -hmm. So, um, I can even see you smiling, like, as you talk yeah. about like your pride in like the work that she's done. Yeah. 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 Just the, um, second clinician to bring up EMDR. So uh -huh. like us EMDR clinicians, like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so it's so effective and so helpful and, and really can move our clients forward in their process. I, I know it's been so formative, um, yeah. for me, you know, in, in, in integrating it. So um, I love that you brought it. Yeah, yeah. And I usually do a double whammy of some DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, yeah. to help strengthen and provide like a concrete skill set. Because I really do believe EMDR is kind of like opening Pandora's box. Yeah. And we want to make sure that um, the people that we treat uh, are able to manage and cope with that. So yeah, outside of session. Yes, you bring such a good point. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. and that's the beautiful, I, I like the um, analogy was to say, like, I'm like a detective and then I'm also like the um, orchestrator of a symphony. So making mm -hmm. sure we're weaving everything together in a harmonic way for yes. our, our clients, hopefully. I mean, sorry, sometimes we get it good and sometimes we get it busy, but that's okay. Yeah. 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 And as I said earlier, like just the rapport building, right? You know, this idea that how do we trust people? How do we, yeah. you know, when I start meeting with my clients, I'm a total stranger to them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how do we create safety? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Safety connection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good old polyvagal theory. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so. um, great. And favorite quote as a clinician or one that you're loving right now or you find yourself coming back to from time and time again? 
so I guess the one being that the lotus blossom grows in the mud, mm -hmm. right? And blooms into a beautiful flower. Uh, and uh, for me personally, and what drives my practice is she believed she could, so she did. Mm -hmm. I just love yeah. that. Thank yeah. you. Don't you ever let a soul in the world tell you that you can't be exactly who you are. Lady Gaga. Can you share with us your name and how many years you have been in social work practice? Sure. So I'm Kimberly Kahn. I'm an LCSW, which is a licensed clinical social worker. I've been in the field for about 11 years now, and um, I've just really always wanted to work with people. Um, ever since I was younger, I knew I wanted to work in the helping profession. Um, so this is not actually my first career, but um, I was in nonprofit management after I graduated from college. And then I decided I wanted to do more direct practice. Yeah. And so that's when I ended up going into social work practice. Um, I wanted to become a therapist in particular because I myself have benefited from therapy when I was much younger in my teens and young adult years. And I just knew that I got to a place where I could help other people. Um, my main focus is eating disorders, chronic dieting, and body image. Amazing. I love that. And it's, it's cool to see how you shaped your, know, your nonprofit work and then that melded you into um, being a social work clinician, right? Because with social work, there's a lot of different um, avenues we can go, right? Like some people graduate with a social work degree and actually end up doing nonprofit work. But it's very cool that you had like one experience and then you took another turn and it had this other very rewarding experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it like melded really perfectly um, because, yeah, nonprofit management is social work. Exactly. Um, I used to do event planning, volunteer yeah. management, um, fundraising. I sort of wore many hats and I loved the creative aspect of that. Yeah. And you know, when I initially, I was going to get my master's in social work for nonprofit management, mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to do something a little bit more one-on-one. -on -one. And so it's, it was, it was kind of a process for me. I didn't initially think I was going to go into direct practice, but um, yeah, I actually went into social work, my master's in social work, not really sure which avenue I was going to go in. I wanted to do therapy, but I was still open to the nonprofit world and I was still working in nonprofit at the time. Um, but it was through my internships where I decided this is for me. This is what I, I got to be doing. Yeah. Would you say that one of the um, biggest things that brought you to social work practice was being um, having your own positive experience? Or was it, you know, your internships? What really like drove it home for you that like, this is where I want to be and I'm going to go for, you know, my LSW and LCSW. And Sure. Um, I think both. I, I think having my own positive experiences um, with my own therapist really helped to really helped to drive that, I guess, passion. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it really transformed me, um, you know, especially when I was younger and in my teens and young adult years, which is why I really like working with that population, because I think you can really, really help them. Um, and, and, and my internships, I think, really, really. So it was a combination of both. Um, 
and just a point of where I felt really ready and confident and, you know, really at a place where I could help other people. Yes. So I love that you brought the part of like being that person for like teens and emerging adults. It is like the best part of working with that. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a client or experience that you've had throughout your years of practice that has shaped you or stood out to you or that you just felt really um, inspired to share today? Sure. So I don't know if I have necessarily a specific um, client. I think so many of my clients shape me. I don't know if I can choose just one, but I think one of the things that really transforms my practice is really learning about intuitive eating. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm a, an eating disorder specialist. Um, I've been doing eating disorders for several years. And I, as I've, you know, met with clients, I've learned so many misconceptions about eating disorders, dieting, et cetera. So I think one of the misconceptions that a lot of people have and that I learned was that eating disorders comes in all shapes and sizes. Mm. I knew that. I knew that eating disorders comes in all shapes and sizes. However, I, you know, one of the things that really really kind of, I guess not blew me away, but that a lot of people cannot imagine someone in a larger body having anorexia. Right. And that's actually pretty common. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've worked with people in higher weight bodies who struggle with anorexia and a lot of people would not even know. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that is really sad is when, you know, these people these individuals are encouraged to lose weight by their doctors. And um, then everyone is praising them for losing weight. And they're actually praising these individuals for having an eating disorder. Um, And so it's really, really sad and really, really harmful. And I don't think that people necessarily like, no, like we're not blaming society. I mean, unfortunately we live in a society that is, very, very fat phobic and very, you know, diet centered. Yeah. Diet culture is a big thing, right? Absolutely. Like um, moving our bodies has become about physique and um, our physicality versus just being able to be in our body and move it in a way that feels wonderful to us or being able to move sticky emotions that just need some space to expand. Right. Absolutely. I love that. And I love that you use like moving our bodies that feel in that feels good because that is so key. Yeah. Right. I love that. Mm-hmm. You can, you can borrow it for sure. <laughs> yeah. That's what, um, Evelyn Tripoli, she, she's like, she's not the founder of, um, of intuitive eating, but she repopularized it. Awesome. So, and, and she's amazing. Yeah. yeah. She talks about that. That's also, you know, eating disorders are really unique um, specialty. I know in Monmouth County, you're like one of two names that I know who specialize in it. Um, so it's great that you also um, offer our listeners just, you know, this name and, and this, this term of intuitive eating. That's super helpful. Yeah. Awesome. And do you have a quote that really summarizes your work or that is your favorite or is great for 2020, 2021? <laughs> <laughs> all had such a year. Yeah. So I really love the serenity prayer. Mm, Um, You know, it it is a religious quote. However, I think it could be used, you know, for anybody. Um, 
And it's God grant me the serenity to change the things that I can, to accept the things that I cannot change and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think that's just so poignant, um, you know, because so many of us are trying to change things that we can't and Mm. so hard to accept things that, yeah. Aren't ideal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there's like that balance of like Mm -hmm. trying to change and accept. Yes. And like you said, the wisdom to know the difference, that wise mind. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Yeah. DBT, wise mind. (laughs) Yes. All right. So can you share with us your name and how long you've been in social work practice? Sure. So my name is Nicole Nolan. I've been officially in social work practice probably for the last three years, but I was previously working in nonprofit and had a different advanced degree. And I just really had a connection for working with people. And I decided that I wanted to do this more clinically. And I went back to school and got my clinical social work degree. I think we had another guest who had a similar route combining the two worlds of nonprofit and social work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, it's really interesting when I went back to school, you know, what had happened was, you know, you have community social work and then you have clinical. So a lot of it really overlapped and it gave me a really cool, um, you know, aspect and perspective to bring to a lot of my classes. Yeah. And it helped you have that um, more macro level perspective coming from the sector. Absolutely. What um, made you connect with the social work field? So I had done a lot of, I guess, soul searching and bouncing around when I was an undergraduate. And I went from working in economics to law, and I finally landed on philosophy. And I decided that what I had wanted to do was I wanted to go to law school and I wanted to work pro bono and I wanted to help people out. So I went to law school for about a week. And while I was there, one of the counselors said to me, oh, honey, you don't want to go to law school. You want to be a social worker. And I was like, well, what is that? So I went back, I came back and I got my degree in public policy. And I started doing nonprofit work with a organization that specifically addressed teen suicide. Mm-hmm. And I've had that touch my life so much as a young person. And with rates uh, increasing, you know, I just had you know, this feeling that I wanted to do it more clinically and I wanted to help, like you said, at a macro level, but I also wanted to do, you know, that micro work individually with people and give, lend them hope and help them as much as possible to stay on this earth and live life to the fullest. I love that. I love the little team group as well. Mm -hmm. And has there been a case or an experience in your um, time as a social worker that has stood out to you and that you find yourself coming back to? They all, some of them really combine for me. And it's kind of like, if there's a way that I can describe it, I've done such a large amount of crisis intervention work where I wasn't the first therapist to come into the picture. And I had so many kids that have been beaten up by being through the system or being sent to the hospital numerous times, but not meeting that criteria for hospitalization and then coming back to still feeling sad and depressed. And I've worked with a couple of kids who have really just told me how much I made a difference in their life. And, you know, it's always nerve wracking when you send somebody to the hospital and you take that big deep breath and you say, you know, I really hope that we're able to have a good outcome here and they get the help and the services that they need. But what I found is sometimes you can't send them just the first time they go, you know, one or two or three or even four times. And, you know, through the crisis intervention work that I did, you know, stabilization really is a 
you know, beautiful process sometimes. And you're like 12 weeks, like who's going to get it together in 12 weeks, but they do. And, you know, I was talking about this last night to a group of people that I was working with, you know, and we really truly sometimes forget how resilient children are. So there's been times, you know, I, I work in my community and a lot of the kids that I've had cases with, you know, I also volunteer and I see them, you know, now that it's been, you know, time away from whatever intervention I was providing with them. And they just give me like the smile of like, I got it, you know, like I'm doing this thing. I'm going to college. I've got my life together. You know, my relationship with my parents is better. I'm not running away from home anymore. Um, I'm not suicidal any longer. You know, I've really come full circle. So I think that that's the beautiful piece for me is that, you know, I was able to go in and as long as it used to kill me being in there for 12 weeks, you let the, like, it's letting your little birds fly out of the nest. And I would say, Oh, I just wish I knew if it was okay. And I see them in a Duncan or I see them somewhere and they're with their friends and they're functioning and they have driver's licenses or they have that college sticker on the back of their car. And I'm just like, Yes, this is this is what I wanted to do. This is why I decided to do this work and, you know, really work with adolescents. Yep. It's your reasons for the why. Yeah. And is there a quote that really summarizes your work or you find yourself coming back to that has really spoken to you? One of my mentors told me very early on that whenever we feel hopeless, the number one way to combat that is with helpfulness. And, you know, at the time I said to myself, I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I'm a social worker. Yeah. Like if I ever feel like burnt, I thought it related to burnout, but it really relates to my kids, mm-hmm. you know, and, and working with suicidal youth is really challenging sometimes. And, you know, you're nervous and you're worried and you're burnt out from, you know, making sure they're okay and safety plans. And sometimes I just take a step back and I'm like, you know what, I feel like, let's change this. Let's talk about gratitude. Let's figure it out. And let's really, you know, make them feel helpful. And you see that hopelessness fall apart, like fall to the side and you do it together. So that's probably one of the quotes that really sticks out to me from my mentor is that, you know, on a basic human level, this is what we're able to do. You don't even need a fancy degree to do that part too. And, you know, I reinforce that with parents all the time. So even, you know, a case stumps me, I go back to that and I say, let's start right here. Let's start with hope. I love that. Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all your insights. Can you share with us your name and how many years you have been in social work practice? Sure. Um, my name is Lindsay Tyne, and I have been in social work practice um, since uh, 2005, so roughly 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been in many different areas uh, from schools to psychiatric facilities, to DCPMP, and a private practice. Amazing. What brought you to the field? Um, That's a really good question. So one of the things that brought me to the field, and I feel like people ask this question a lot, and sometimes I wonder if, you know, you should just give the generic answer, like, because I like helping others. Um, But honestly, speak, you said speak from the heart. So, um, it was family stuff, really. Like, uh, you know, growing up with uh, an aunt who had, still does have serious addiction issues. Um, and I never really understood it. And then I kind of wanted to figure out how I could help a little more or kind of understand like why, you know, things were the way that they were. And then my cousin, her her daughter um, became uh, 
addicted as well. A lot of like child neglect from my, from my aunt and stuff. So basically family stuff really is what led me to the path in which I am currently in. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those vulnerable parts. Sometimes. No, par- no problem. <laughs> it's important because I think people sometimes think that we are we, we don't deal it's with things. Small. Yeah. Yeah. It humanizes the experience, right? Like um, there's like taboo topics in our field, like gift receiving. Someone else brought that one. Um, but then self-disclosure, like the art of self-disclosure. And honestly, you know, it's with finesse, obviously. And, you know, we can ask for permission in sessions, um, but it can really humanize the experience between clinician and client. And like you're saying, like we, even though we are the clinician, we're not immune to suffering and struggle. hundred percent. Um, I couldn't agree with you more because yeah, like in social work school, you know, they're always like, you know, self-disclosure, self-disclosure, be careful, be careful. But you're, you're right. Like sometimes it allows people to realize that we are human. So it's important, yeah. but within reason. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And is there a client that you have, um, or an experience as a social worker that you've had, um, that's molded you as a clinician or has really stuck with you or uh, you find yourself thinking about from, you know, day to day, time to time? Yeah. You know, I, when you, when I read the questions, I had to really think, and I was like, you know, who do I, like who sticks with me and who comes up? And I have to say, um, it is one of the girls that I worked with because in the district I'm in, I am district wide. So I work with pre-K through 12th grade. And so she came to us in middle school and she was with me from middle school, you know, until she graduated. And she, there was a lot of stuff, a whole lot of stuff. And, um, you know, to the point where there was times where I was the bad guy and then she'd come back around. I was the good guy, you know, just kind of like, just a lot of bumps in the road for her. And there was something about her uh, that made me really, you know, obviously all my clients are wonderful and stuff, but this one sticks with me um, because she did struggle with so much and family stuff, addiction stuff, uh, relationship stuff. And she, you know, would have her ups and downs and we were able to kind of help help her grow. Um, I actually, one thing that sticks with me is this, you probably think this is crazy was she didn't really like to come to school. So it's pouring and they're like, Lindsay, you got to go get her. I was like, okay, where is she? She's outside. So I walk outside, she's in her car. I'm like knocking on the window. I'm like, all right, come, come in, you know, I'll walk with you. You can come to my office, just come in. And she was not having it. So she threw her car. What? And you're in the pouring rain. Yes, in the pouring rain. And she throws the car into reverse. And I'm like, oh my God, she's going to run me over. And how old was she? She was old enough to drive at this point. She was 17. And she pulled away and she got in an accident. And it was a mess. But lo and behold, um, after that, she, I, I think that was like the rock bottom, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And after that, she started, you know, more intensive treatment and, you know, still like, she'll reach out to me still to this day mm-hmm. and kind of connect. And she reached out the other day and she's like, I miss you. No, how are you doing? And there's, wow. there's like this place in my heart mm-hmm. that she's doing, she's doing well. Like she's using her coping skills and she's doing better. And it's just like, you know, when you see somebody, 
at their worst and they then like figure it out and with the guidance and with not giving up and like you know I'm gonna keep pushing you I'm gonna keep pushing you that she kind of came around and the fact that she even being removed from you know school you know so many years later that she still is like hey how are you I'm like that's awesome is there something that makes you emotional about her case when you think about it yeah (laughs) you can tell social workers we're like wired to notice those things even through the call yeah but she moved you yeah 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 no that's awesome and a quote that summarizes the work that you do as a social worker sorry (laughs) and that's what I was looking for too like a quote like (laughs) there's so many quotes like what moves you as a social worker I don't know um, oh, I don't know why I like this. <laughs> you know, because our job is awesome. <laughs> and we get these experiences with our clients. And yes, it's a professional relationship, but it's also personal and it's deeply moving for us. Yeah. So I guess the quote that kind of just keeps coming back is like, be the change that you wish to see, right? So mm-hmm. basic. Yeah. But like, good one. It's, it's so basic. But yet it like makes total sense. Yeah. Like in order for things to change, you got to do it, right? Like, I don't know. So I think that's the quote that really kind of resonates. Yep. (laughs) The activists, right? Which is another really awesome part. Yeah. So I think that's kind of what does it for me. That one. I love it. Lindsay, thanks for sharing. (laughs) Can you share with us your name and how many years you've been in social work practice? Sure. Um, my name is Jody Manning, and I completed my social work degree in 2012, but I've actually been in the field since I was a teenager, so that's 30-something years. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm not going to do the math. <laughs> what brought you to the field, whether it was teen years or your adult years? Yeah, well, I knew I knew firsthand what it was to suffer Mm -hmm. and to not have anyone to turn to. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just didn't want anyone else ever to experience that. Um, And then as I matured, I, I found an end to my own suffering Mm -hmm. and I just became very focused and dedicated to be able to be there for other people to help guide them toward the end of their own suffering. Love that. Is there a client or an experience that you've had throughout your years in practice that really resonates with you? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, so many, of course, um, but there's one that's been recent. So I'll, I'll talk about her. Um, she's actually been on my mind. Um, you know, one of the great privileges in our field is when we get to see a, a person realize their true selves, the, the self that's beyond their problems, beyond their fears, beyond their diagnoses. So I always find it to be such a privilege to be part of that, to witness that. Um, so anyway, I had a client who I was working with through this uh, COVID pandemic. She was angry. She she was furious. <laughs> and she seemed to wear her anger like a badge of honor. She wore her anger like a shield to protect her. Um, She's been hurt so many times 
And there was just no way anyone was ever going to hurt her again. She would absolutely hurt you before you could get to her. So, so hmm? she could protect herself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that that's fine. Um, and she she wanted our help. So she did reach out. Um, she's she's been seen for therapy um, in our program before. And she let me know in no uncertain terms that she would drop me like a hot potato if I turned on her in any way. You'd divorce you. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, so she was known for doing this. She was known for starting and immediately dropping out of treatment. Mm-hmm. And she's just never gotten the help that she needed. So it, it was hard to build her trust. Um, she was putting up walls. She was testing me. And she really made me earn her trust. Mm-hmm. But eventually I was able to. Well, you know, at least to some extent, not completely. Um, and after the trust was built, we were actually able to get some work done. I was able to push her and challenge her. Um, and I think she felt safe enough in that environment to, to be challenged and pushed. Anyway, fast forward several months and she's now working. Mm-hmm. She is providing for her children. Wow. She feels better about herself. She feels happier, more confident, more optimistic. And she did so much work and made an incredible transformation. And I got to witness that. Isn't that the beautiful part? Yeah. I always say like, that's like, that's my paycheck right there. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. I always like put like work in quotations, right? Exactly. Right. No, it's such a privilege. It's such a privilege. That's the word that, that always stands out to me. Yeah. You get to go alongside another's journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And favorite quote or one that's really speaking to you right now? Okay. So there's a quote, you've probably heard of it. Um, To the world, you may be one person, but to one person, you may be the world. So, you know, I guess you could look at like, this could sound sort of prideful, um, but it is not. It's just the reality as social workers that we might be someone's lifeline. And I'd rather acknowledge and accept that than have a nonchalant attitude toward the work we do. For some, it can be really vulnerable to open up to a therapist to say, I need help. And I wanna honor that. I wanna show up completely. And acknowledging our responsibility to our clients is the first step of showing up. And so that's what that quote means to me. Yeah, the word that's coming up for me is, sacred like we hold a role um you know we have this opportunity to hold it of of the utmost like the utmost importance like that we can be that person for someone else and that they allow it and they allow it right and that like you were saying with your client like she allowed herself to walk through that process of trusting you to allow you to be that person for her yeah, she was willing to take that risk. So I had to be willing to show up as many times as she tried to tell Divorce. me not to. Yeah. We love that. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. Hi, my name is Jacqueline Sabodi, and I've been in social work practice for about 12 years. I entered the field of social work for several reasons. However, I believe this calling has been in me since childhood. Reflecting back, I've always been enamored by the stories and emotional experiences of others. I remember around age 12 telling one of my parents I wanted to be a social worker, not really knowing exactly what that meant. 
My work began through volunteering in middle school and being a listening, empathetic ear to my closest friends. During my late teens and early college years, I was going through my own mental health journey and landed on the couch of a social work clinician. It was through our work that I experienced deep and profound healing. My time with her solidified my desire to be in the field, and in college I ended up double majoring in psychology and social work at Fordham University. Being so in love with this work and the field, I recently embarked on a Doctor of Social Work program at Rutgers University, and I'm so proud to be on this journey. I can wholeheartedly say I feel like I am exactly where I'm meant to be in the field of social work, and being a clinician feels like home. I've had the great honor of walking along so many experiences with my clients. As I prepared for this podcast, one client in particular stood out. It was always about socks. For the last six years, I've held the privilege of being with my client during so many chapters of her story. When we first began, she was dealing with familial dysfunction, struggling to manage her overwhelming anxiety that was caused by PTSD, was navigating her role as a student, and eventually ended up leaving her college program. Additionally, she had a very low self-worth. As a clinician, I was aware that our work was precious and would be rich with pain and joy. She was entrusting me with the most fragile and vulnerable parts of her life. I also recognized that in that moment, I may have been one of the few people that she could build a safe attachment with. Little did she know that she would be the catalyst for my own growth as a clinician. Over the years of our work together, she has been presented with many challenges, with many successes, but most importantly, with her own growth. There's a part of our work that has stuck out to me the most. During her first year of treatment, I invited her to engage in therapeutic homework aimed to enhance her reparenting process and increase her self-worth. It was around Christmas time, and I asked if she would be open to buying herself a Christmas gift that year. Months earlier, we had processed how long, how, how low she felt about herself, that even, buying, that even buying herself a pair of socks was difficult. This broke my heart. I remember holding back my own tears while simultaneously being in that moment with her, knowing how much she deserved in her life, including socks. That year, with some heavy hesitation, hesitation, she brought herself a pair of socks, wrapped them up, and placed them under the Christmas tree. This act became paramount in our work together and symbolized her first step of really getting to know her own worth. Over the years, each time she works through a new life hurdle or she's going back to school or going on a job interview, we make sure that she has a special pair of socks to wear. Socks have become a symbol for the rich success she has shown throughout our work together. Fast forward to present day. My client is living independently, has a loving and supportive partner, is financially stable, is top of her class, and is about to complete her nursing degree. To say I am proud is an understatement. During our session this past January, she nonchalantly shared with me, I have a knitting goal this year. I'm going to knit myself one pair of socks each month. So at the end of the year, I have 12 pairs of socks. I felt my eyes moisten as she told me this goal. I don't actually think she realized the magnitude of this act and how it simply conveyed to me as her clinician that she has arrived at this place in her life where she knows her own worth. Making herself socks encapsulates every ounce of how wonderful it is to be a clinician, to be present with her as my client, and to know how significant our work is. My favorite quote that I come back to from time to time is one by Emily Dickinson. 
Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings a tune without the words and never stops at all. Being a social worker is about our ability to show up wholeheartedly, without judgment, and to hold space for whatever others may be going through. It is about our relationship with another and our ability to unequivocally be there for another human being while they own their story. Our clients truly fill our lives with such depth and goodness. They are our greatest teachers. Whether it's watching the sunset from the back of a teen client's car because she has chosen to take her telehealth session from the beach, or holding the hand of your client during their stage of death and dying, or being with your client who has just miscarried after her last round of IVF, or navigating the effects of a grueling and traumatic event with a client. The stories we encounter are endless, and in this month, take a moment, pause, and acknowledge your very own bravery and strength for being there as a social worker. As we approach this year, I call for us to not remain silent in the face of oppression and adversity, to remember to be the voice of others, especially those who are marginalized and disenfranchised by society, to not forget you are essential, and nothing is good in this world without your power. Yeah. <laughs>